It's that time again. WOTR is on the air. It's two and one half hours of classic old-time radio. I'm your host, John Richardson. So sit back, relax, and enjoy old-time radio as it was meant to be. Welcome to WOTR, your old-time radio station on the Internet. This episode is all about crime, the criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement that solves them all in 30 minutes or less. Who remembers the Doubleday Crime Club novels? These were stories printed in the 1930s and 40s of actual crimes from around the country. They were stories that were written in graphic detail. And radio took those stories and brought them to the air on the radio series Crime Club. And this time around, we offer you a story entitled The Coney Island Nocturne. From Mutual, July 10, 1947, it's The Coney Island Nocturne on Crime Club. Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Coney Island Nocturne. Yes, we have a story for you. Come right over. chair by the window. Comfortable? The manuscript is on this shelf. Here it is, Coney Island Nocturne, the very absorbing story of fingers that were nailed by death. Let's look at it under the reading lamp. When Mike Donahue brought Helen O'Malley to Coney Island for an evening of fun, he had only the best intentions. Naturally, he was an officer of the law, a detective. And she was his fiancée. But three hours later, they stood in the middle of a crowded, noisy carnival street. They were faced with a crisis of catastrophic proportions. Mike, I'm afraid I'll never understand you. How many times have I told you never to keep your wallet in your hip pocket? Yeah. If you were just another palooka who didn't know any better, then, well, all right. But you're a member of the pickpocket squad. You're supposed to know. Yeah. Haven't you got anything to say? How much money have you got on you? Enough to get us home. Helen, you're not going to tell the boys at the station house. No, dear. I still expect to marry you someday. I want congratulations, not sympathy. Yeah, well... Hey, Mike. Uh, hmm? Who was that? Look over there, honey, and you'll see a character. Hiya, Mike. I never thought I'd be glad to see you. Benny Gould. You recognize me, don't you? Look me over, pal. I've done a 60-day stretch in a workhouse, and I ain't a bit tired. <laughs> what are you doing down here, Benny? I thought your territory was Times Square. I got a job. I'm going straight, Mike. You don't say. Yep. Got fed up looking through bars. So now I'm a barker for a show up the street. Hey, who's the uh, tomato? Helen O'Malley, chipmunk. Do you consider me fruit or vegetable? Huh? Oh, <laughs> It's a riot, Mike. Is it uh, permanent? Put your hands behind your head, Benny. What? I'm going to frisk you. Now, do you want to put him up, or do I have to coach you? I put him up. You can cut nothing on me. I'm on a level now, Mike. You're an old-time pickpocket, Benny. You know, where you cops make a label stick. Once a crook, always a crook. Mike, he wouldn't have your wallet. Maybe not, Helen. But this dip can pick the whiskers off a sleeping cat and get away with it. Okay, Benny. Thanks. Come on, Helen. Hey, wait a minute. 
Was she kidding about your wallet? You're blocking traffic. Come on, you don't have to be ashamed to tell me about it. I used to be in the business. Uh, you wouldn't be giving it to us now, would you? Look, I know every dip on the island. Give me a chance, maybe I'll get your wallet back for you. Why, Chipmunk? Because I'm a good citizen, that's why. All right, Benny, let's go. Hey, what is this, a pinch? You were going to take me to the wallet, weren't you? i got to find it first, Mike. Suppose we do that together, huh? Uh-uh. I ain't putting my finger on nobody. If you want your property, then you'll wait till I nab the guy that's got it, and then I'll bring it to you. Don't argue, Mike. Be practical. That's what I say, sister. I'm doing him a favor. But how is it done, Chipmunk? Coney Island's a big place. Well, I contact a few of the dips, and they spread the word around, that's all. Okay, Benny. It's going to take time, Mike. Uh, meet me at the beach at the end of the boardwalk in a couple hours. Eleven o'clock. And don't follow me. We won't. Mike wants his wallet, and I want Mike to be happy. We'll meet you on the beach at 11 o'clock. Boardwalk and... Oh, I think we ought to adopt Benny, don't you? It was his suggestion. Well, we're not exactly alone, Helen. Are you going to worry about that girl all night? Well, she might be watching us. She's fast asleep. Besides, she's a good 30 feet away. Come on, my bashful Romeo. Give me a... Hmm? It's only me, Mike. I didn't want to keep you waiting. Benny, don't you ever blow your horn when you come to a crossing? Blow my... Oh, I get it. Well, I figured it didn't mean nothing. See, there ain't no moon out. Have you got the wallet? Not yet, pal. You said 11 o'clock, and it's almost half past. Okay, but Coney Island's got a lot of depths, and they're spread out all over. you got to be patient, Mike. How much longer? Listen, i got a couple of dozen guys working right now. Stick around for a little while. You ain't got nothing to lose with that tomato. I'll see you later. Where you going? My boss gets worried when he don't know what I'm doing. So long. Now, Mike, where were we? What do you mean, Helen? When we were so rudely interrupted with a report about nothing. Oh, let's go home, huh? But, Mike... Well, it's a long trip, honey, and I've got to be at the station house at 8 o'clock in the morning. But your wallet... Then he can send it to me. He knows where. What was that? Thunder, baby, and we'll have to run. I hope it pours. Help me out. All right, come on. I hope it pours for 40 days and 40 nights. Let's go. Wait a minute. We can't leave that girl sleeping there on the beach. No. No, I'm going to wake her up. Oh, of course. Oh, don't be unreasonable, Helen. There's going to be a storm. How would you like to get drenched? Why oh, wait for a storm? You can dampen my spirits. Uh-oh. What's the matter? It's raining. Already? I just felt a drop on my nose. Let's get out of here, Mike. Wait a minute, dear. Oh, excuse me, lady. I think you'd better... Uh, miss. Miss. Why don't you just yell in her ear? I don't think it would do any good, Helen. Well, try it and find out. I just felt another drop. You just can't wake up the dead by making a lot of noise. Huh? Mike, she isn't... She is, Helen. From head to foot. The poor kid. And to think we were sitting only 30 feet away on the same beach. Well, she was dead before we got here, Helen. I'll never forgive myself, Mike, the way I talked about her. But if it hadn't been for that storm that never broke... Mike, I feel terrible. Well, here's something to keep you busy. Her handbag? Yeah, look through it. She might have some identification. All right. I should get to a call box, you know. The local police might hear about this. I'm not staying here alone. I don't know what there is about the dead that scares people, Are you sure she was murdered, Mike? Her skull was crushed with a sandbag. I can't believe a little thing like that could kill anybody. Well, this little thing weighs about ten pounds, honey, and it's packed solid. Well, Mike. What's the matter? Look. 
Your wallet. Well, I'll be... It was in her handbag. Give it to me. Of all things, that girl, a pickpocket. 20, 25, 30, It sort of shatters your faith in people, doesn't it? 40, so young and so pretty. 40, it's all here, Helen. What's all here? My money. Oh, that's good. Well, aren't you glad? I'm too busy wondering about human nature. Postpone it until we get a line on the girl. Come on, keep looking in her handbag. Mike, darling, you may be a detective, but... Then I'll look. That's your job. Oh, dear, a pickpocket. Mike, what kind of people murder pickpockets? All kinds. Well, I mean, pickpockets are the lowest kind of crooks, the bottom of the underworld. They don't work in mobs, do they? Sometimes. Hmm. Maggie Blake. What's that? A name on this identification card. A pickpocket with a... It doesn't make sense, Mike. It never does, honey, until you know what it's all about. Do you? No, but I'm going to find out. That's nice. Where do we start? First, we head to a call box. Get the homicide squad working. As long as we do it together, dear. And after that, we're going to Josie Johnson's Palace of Joy. We're going where? Read it. It's on this business card I found in Maggie Blake's handbag. Oh. Well, as long as they advertise, it should be all right, shouldn't it? Helen, what's wrong with you? You'll never know, Mike, what I thought you were talking about. you. I'm glad to see you again. Where have you been keeping yourself? I went out for a walk, Josie. You're a liar. Hey, now look. I said you're a liar. What are you going to do about it? We're, uh, we're doing pretty good business, Josie. So what? Suckers like the show we give them. I give them. You're only window dressing like a husband should be. But you're not even good window dressing. Uh, put that bottle back. I haven't had a drink all night, Josie. Put it back and lock that drawer. Oh, just one. There's the key on top of the desk. Use it. Between you and me, I don't care if you drink yourself into pink elephants. But you talk when you're drunk. And that's bad for me. Oh, I don't know why I've got to take it from you. Stop any time you want. There's a bed at the bottom of the ocean. Now, give me that key. I started this business. It was my idea to set up the show. That was so long ago, you've died a hundred times since. Where have you been for the last three hours? I told you. Just walking around, huh? Inhaling the fresh Coney Island air. I got tired sitting around in the office watching you run you things. You said you were going out front for a couple of minutes to look around. So I went for a walk. What's the difference? Came back and you weren't here, so I went out again. How's uh, Maggie Blake? What? Don't look so dumb. You are out with her, weren't you? No. Pete, this is Josie you're talking to, your wife. I've known you for a long time. I haven't seen the girl, I tell you. You, you want me to lay off, and I, I... Was she here? Are you kidding? Well, didn't she even bring in the take? Are you calling me a cheat? No, no, wait, wait, Josie, wait a minute. You you know I don't think you're a doubler, but Maggie always comes in a few times like the others, and she's pretty regular. She was too busy tonight. Not with me. Shut up, Pete. You're through making a monkey out of me. Josie, you're all wrong. Everybody I... on the island's talking about you and Maggie. I'm telling you for the last time, I don't like it. I don't like people feeling sorry for me. Well, why don't you give her the air? Because she knows too much. Um, Palace of Joy. Josie Johnson talking. Uh, this is Bunny. I got a message for Pete. What is it? Tell him I can't find Maggie Blake. That's all. That's enough, Benny. Nice going, Pete. Huh? When did you decide to use Benny as a stooge? 
What do you mean, Joe? What do you take me for, a two-year-old? You think I start believing because Benny calls up and says you've had him looking for Maggie? Is that what he just told you? You cheap, chiseled sneak! <laughs> now get out of here. Go out front and help take tickets. I'm sorry you did that, Joe. Go on, go on. I get sick looking at you. You've been having things your own way too long, baby. Look out you don't drop dead one of these days. <laughs> You're very funny, Pete. Yeah, yeah. I'm a real comedian, but don't laugh too hard. You're liable to fall out of this world. There should be an office here, Helen. Another door besides the main entrance from the street. Should bees don't count. So this is the Palace of Joy. Who's crazy, Mike? The world? I've got no time to think about it now. Oh, excuse me. The pickpocket squad has to solve a murder. First life can wait. I tell you, Maggie Blake, it's something to do with this place. Just because you found that business card in her handbag. Maybe. You're driving without lights, darling. Business cards don't prove... Say, Mike. Hmm? There's Benny. Where? Talking to that man by that puppet stage. Well, that's funny. I was looking over there only a minute ago. I didn't see anyone. It could be magic, you know. Ah, this must be the place he works in. And maybe that's Josie Johnson he's talking to. Come on, we'll ask him a few questions about Maggie Blake. Anything you say, dear, you're the law. But who would come here to see a puppet show? This isn't exactly a playground for kids. Oh, you beginning to get ideas, too? It just hit me, all of a sudden. Maybe the shows they put on here are not for kids. You know. I've been around, sweetheart. What? Concentrate on Benny and his partner. They've seen us and they've stopped talking. Hiya, Mike. How'd you and a doll find out about me in the palace? You've been, uh, asking questions? We found a card in the storm, Benny. Storm? What you talking about, Mike? There ain't been no storm. Who's this guy, Benny? Give me a chance to introduce you to him. Pete, this is Mike Donahue, a deck from Times Square. Well, pleased to meet you. Pickpocket squad. Dame's his girlfriend. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoy yourselves. I'll be seeing you. Just a minute. I've seen you before someplace. Were you over in the lineup at police headquarters? Who, me? What's your full name? Pete. Peter Blake. Mike. Peter Blake, eh? Any relation to Maggie? Yeah. Yeah, she's my niece. But she's not in trouble, is she, Mr. Donahue? Not anymore. Benny, where do I find Josie Johnson? The boss? Mm-hmm. I don't get it, Mike. You're acting just like a cop on the prowl. You recognize all the signs, don't you? Get Josie Johnson. The boss ain't here. Benny, you want me to be nice to you? I'm telling the truth, Mike. I came back looking for the boss myself. Pete told That's me. That's right, Mr. Donahue. Now, now, would you mind? I'd, I'd like to know about my niece. She's been murdered, Mr. Blake. She... Murdered? Yeah. You're kidding, Mike. Not that cute little kid that used oh, to... Oh, Maggie. Take Maggie. it easy, Pete. That's not going to get you no price. Oh, but why? Why should anybody kill Maggie? She never... Mr. Donahue, where is she? At the morgue by now. Would you like to tell me what she never did? I'm going to claim her body. I'll see you later if she's still here. Mike, you're not letting him go, are you? Why not, Helen? But he didn't even ask how his niece was killed. I noticed it. I noticed the tears, too. They were the kind you find on a crocodile. So, why didn't you hold him? Darling, a policeman doesn't hold everybody. Does he, Benny? Well, pick on me, Mike. I don't know nothing about it. Sure. Okay, so... Give me the eye like I was ready for the wagon. I'm on your side, ain't I? I'm trying to get your wallet back for you, ain't I? Keep trying, Benny. Okay, I'll go out and contact some more depths. Stick around. I'll let you know what comes up. Mike, 
Why didn't you tell him you've got the wallet? Then Benny would have stuck around, too. And I think we ought to be alone. Here, with all these people? They won't pay any attention to us. They're too busy having fun. Well, we're going to get busy, too. What do you mean? How did Benny and Pete get to this puppet stage without my seeing them? Magic? Maybe. But I've got a hunch. We find out how, and we'll find out why and who killed Maggie Blake. Sneaking in through that alley door. There's a dick out front, Josie. Yeah? He was asking for you. Benny and I played dumb. We didn't tell him you were here in the office. What was he asking for me for? Murder. Huh? Maggie Blake. You killed her, Josie. Have you gone crazy? <laughs> now, wait a minute, I've been Pete. waiting a long time, baby. You shouldn't have done it. You're going to have to leave town now. We'll see about that. That was some act you put on before. Getting hot because I was out with Maggie. But you knew I wasn't, didn't you, Josie? You knew she was dead. You knew exactly where she was because you'd left her Hello, there. Express. I want the city editor. You thought please. I was sweet on her. Well, sure I was. I was nuts about her. But you didn't have to kill her. She was going to get married. Yeah, yeah, she found herself a boyfriend, a good, clean kid... She was going to quit the racket. She told me this afternoon, Josie. City editor, this is Josie Johnson. I own the Palace of Joy. I've just been told... All right, I'll wait. I wasn't going to tell you about it. I was going to let her get away first. I was going to make sure she lived to get married, but Shut Julia... up, Keith. Hello? Yeah, Josie Johnson. I've just been told that one of my employees was murdered. Maggie Blake. Uh-huh. Huh? On the beach? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, it checks, don't it, Angel? She was slugged with a sandbag, Pete. How soon are you going, Josie? Gone where? Away. You're not waiting for the cops, are you? I didn't kill her. That dick out front thinks you did. He asked for you. Yeah, and you told him I wasn't here. You wanted him to think I'd taken a powder. Why don't you? I'll give you enough dough to get out of the country. You give me? This is my show. Now meet the new boss. You don't say. Yeah, I do... That's for the new boss, Pete. Why, you red-headed... What's that? Hey, come on, open up! It's the detective, Mike ah. Donahue. Who told him about that door behind the puppet stage? I'm not waiting to find out. So long, Josie, and good burning to you. Not as long as you're alive, Pete. Don't run so fast, baby. You'll go through the wall. Open that door and let's get out of here. I'm glad you built that other door solid. For a louse, you used to have good ideas. Look around before you go into that alley. It's clear. You got the keys. Come on, come on, have you got him? I got him. Okay, give them to me. I'll lock this door on the outside. Boy, whoever put that door up... Mike, you're wonderful. Tell that to my commissioner. There was a man and woman in here. We heard the voices. Locked. They didn't go out this way. You said there was something behind that puppet stage. But why an office? What kind of a business would they... That door over there. It's the only way out. Mike, is there something in this palace of joy besides uh, uh, joy? Well... Flight of steps going down the cellar. Are we going down that flight? Yeah. Here's the light switch. Oh, I'd feel a lot safer, Mike, if there were more than two of us. Let's not think about that now. Come on, follow me.
Mike. Stop worrying, Helen. There's nobody down here. How can you be so sure? All these boxes piled in rows up to the ceiling. Suppose those two people are behind one of these rows. They're not waiting to see the whites of our eyes, honey. If they were down here, they... Uh, wait a minute. I'd rather go, Mike. Sandbag. Just like the one Maggie Blake was killed with. What difference does it make? There's a puppet stage upstairs. Why can't they keep an extra sand... Oh. Oh. I see what you mean. Thanks. You're almost as slow as I am. Sandbags are used to hold down the curtain. The one on the beach had to come from here. But there are other puppet shows at Coney Island. But only one palace of joy that Maggie Blake was connected with. We met her uncle upstairs, remember? Yes, dear. Uh, shall we go now? Not yet. There must be some way that man or woman got out. Let's turn this corner. I'm sure we won't find prosperity. <gasps> those men! <laughs> All those men standing against the wall! What's the matter with you, Helen? Can't you see they're only dummies? I don't care that they are. I'm not taking another step. All right, stay here. With pleasure. Those filthy, horrible-looking things. Yeah, I can tell you exactly what they are. Helen, where are you? Sitting down, Mike, behind the pile of boxes. Well, listen, these are training dominies. The kind the uh, old-time pickpockets used to, to teach newcomers. Come over here, and I'll show you the lights that flash on when the student is clumsy. Hmm. Palace of Joy, huh? Hmm. Josie Johnson's running a school for pickpockets. That means that Benny Figure is one of the... Figure it out for yourself, Cupcake. Hmm? My, do you look surprised. Who are you? Josie Johnson. Now, turn around, Mike, and I'll take your pretty thirty-eight out of your pretty holster. Uh-uh. Just keep your hands up high. Where's Helen, the girl that was down She's here? resting. She collided with the butt of my gun, and it uh, knocked her out. Why did you do it? I got jealous. You're uh, such a handsome guy for a cop. You know all about me, eh? Not all, Cupcake. Give me time. I've only just met you. I'm going to go look for Helen. Not without my permission. Now, listen, she might be barely hurt. She'll recover in time for the wedding. How would you like to be a hero? You make a practice of hitting women on the head. Mike, I'm trying to get you a medal. I know who killed Maggie Blake. Yeah? I guess it was somebody else, wasn't it? It was. And if you'll go quietly, I'll take you right to him. Where? He's in my apartment. And he's dying to meet you. Go ahead, Cupcake. Turn the knob. How about the key, Josie? I never lock my door. I'm a free trader. Okay. Forward, Mike. I'll be right behind you. Loaded to the hilt. You're so persuasive. You'll admit I've got a way about me. Yeah, so I see. Is that the guy who's dying to meet me? That's him, sprawled out over that table, drunk again. Pete. Hey, Pete. Say, that's Maggie Blake's uncle. What? Who told you that? He did. Well, he'll tell you differently. That's Pete Johnson, my husband. Wake him up. Well, I'll get him to sit up first. <clears throat> A knife in his chest. Pete. You can't hear you, Josie. He's dead. Killed himself. Yeah. He couldn't take the rap. He must have done it just before we came in. He's still got his fingers around the knife. Will you stop kidding me? Uh, what do you mean? Your initials are on the handle. J.J. So what? The knife was on that table and he took it. Josie, you ought to know what happens right after a person dies. He's dead, so? His body relaxes. If Pete killed himself, he wouldn't be holding on to the knife. Huh? You catch on fast, don't you? Pete's fingers were wrapped around that knife after he was killed. You're not going to say I did it, Mike. Who else? You brought me here to arrest Pete for murder. But you knew he was already dead. Set up to look like suicide. You're raving, mister. That was going to be your alibi. Pete couldn't take the rap. Your own words, Josie. Yeah. 
Well? Huh. How many bullets do I get? I ought to give them all to you. Both guns. That means I get a hero's funeral. Turn around and walk to that wall. I get it in the back, huh? Gangster style. That wall, Mike. All right. But remember, no practice shots. You're pretty cool for tamale. Death in the line of duty. It makes great newspaper copy. Turn your face to the wall. Now, just stand there and don't move and don't look. So long, cupcake. Hey, what's the idea? Josie, you'll never get out of New York. You know that. Well, and she told me she never locks her door. It's all right, Helen. Everything's all right now. Mike, what hit me? The butt of a gun. Next time you stick close to me. Who did? Josie Johnson. She locked me in her apartment. Oh. Lucky for me, there was a window facing a street. You should have heard me yell. Josie Johnson. Mike, did you say she? Mm-hmm. A glamorous redhead. Shh. Mike. Shh. Somebody's down here. The redhead? I don't know. These boxes are in the way. Can you get up without screaming? If you help me. All right, then. Easy now. Oh. Oh. I made it. Come on. On your toes. No more talk. If it's Josie, she's got two guns. One of them is mine. Going someplace, Benny? Look out, Mike. She's got a gun on her toes. You'll never get a chance to use it, will you, Benny? I got my hand. Let go of the gun. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that was you and a doll, Mike. I wouldn't pull no gun on you. But you did. That's a lot of money you packed into that suitcase. You expect to spend it in one hey, lifetime? You gotta listen to me, Mike. I don't got it, pal, but I'll be glad to. Look, I found out that Josie and Pete was operating a pickpocket school. When the kids was ready, they used to send them out to dip. Tell me about the money. Well, the kids used to bring in the whole take to Josie. She'd give them a cut and put the rest of it in that hole behind that hunk of concrete. How does a barker find out about such things, Benny? I heard Josie and Pete talking. And you knew exactly where to go for the money. You gotta listen to me, Mike. I ain't no killer. Come on, let's take a walk. No, wait, I don't I don't want that dough. I, I, I was just gonna take it because, well, you know, it was there and I, I figured... You should have made sure Pete was dead before you left him. What? It's not so easy to find the heart with a knife. Sometimes you're missed by a fraction of an inch. And you wind up in the electric chair. What are you giving me, Mike? Pete Johnson, otherwise known as Peter Blake. A famous uncle. He ain't dead. He is now... But a lot of people heard his dying statement. Would you like to know what it was? You're kidding me. Don't look around, Benny. There's no way out of this cellar except through me. You're kidding me, you dirty copy. You're kidding me. Let's go, Weasel. The show's over. And you put on a pretty good one. It's too bad for you it didn't click. part of going to Coney Island, the ride home in the subway. Yeah. Oh, well, Benny's confession sort of makes it worthwhile. Imagine that chipmunk having the whole thing planned from the beginning, yeah. picking your pocket and then asking us to meet him on the beach where he'd left Maggie Blake's dead body. What a character. And all for a few measly dollars. 30000 I even thought he'd get away with it. You'd suspect Josie and Pete Johnson of Maggie's murder and he'd be... Mike, you didn't tell me how he got to Pete to kill him. I guess I'll have to, won't I? Well, he followed them to their apartment after they left the office. Yes. Then he phoned Josie and told her to help him frame Pete. She came back to the palace looking for me. Well, the rest is history. Yes, but Mike, what made you suspect Benny? Two things, sweetheart. Josie had a chance to kill me and didn't. And Benny going for the money in the wall. Uh, 
Can I go to sleep now, dear? One more thing. What happened to Josie? She was picked up. Now, darling. All right, honey. Mike. Hmm? Is this your wallet? Where'd you get it? Out of your hip pocket. For a member of the pickpocket squad, you are about the easiest pickings I've ever known. Good night, dear. And so closes tonight's story, Coney Island Nocturne. Stedman Coles wrote the radio script. Roger Bauer produced and directed. Walter Kinsella played Mike Donahue. Joan Alexander was Helen O'Malley. Jean Ellen was heard as Josie Johnson. Bill Quinn was Peter Johnson. And Joseph Julian was Benny Gould. Oh, I beg your pardon. Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Yes. Come over a week from tonight. Good. We have the very exciting story of a sparkle that bloomed into murder. It's called Death Deals a Diamond. In the meantime... Well, in the meantime, there is a new crime club book available this week and every week at bookstores everywhere. Yes, it's available now. Fine. And we'll look for you next week. This program came from New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. The Crime Club from the Mutual Radio Network. Up now we go to This Is Your FBI, a crime drama show based on real FBI files. In this episode, entitled The Slaughterhouse Swindle, we see the lead agent, Jim Taylor, solving the crime of stolen cattle. From the ABC Radio Network, May 31, 1946, it's This Is Your FBI. The Equitable Life Assurance Society presents this is your FBI. This is your FBI, an official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. Friends, if you happen to know anyone who is thinking of buying or building a home, or is considering refinancing his present home, please phone him and tell him to listen to this program. For in a few minutes, our sponsor, the Equitable Life Assurance Society, will give facts and figures about America's finest plan for home ownership. Every family will want to hear about this great Equitable Society plan which saves money and gives special protection to homeowners.
Tonight's FBI file, The Slaughterhouse Swindlers. Professional criminals are avowed enemies of society and as such merit the full penalty prescribed by the laws which they violate. But so-called good citizens who conspire with criminals to violate the law for personal gain are the Benedict Arnolds of society. The prayers for profit of the respect and welfare of those whom they would call fellow citizens. And as such... They merit the contemptuous kind of moral condemnation that is reserved for all traitors. On a modest little dairy farm a few miles out of Des Moines, Mrs. Reba Jones, recently widowed, has just completed the morning's chores and is walking up to the house when two men drive up in a truck designed for hauling livestock. Good morning, ma'am. Good morning. Are you Mrs. Reba Jones? Yes, sir. Well, my name's Latimer, and this is Mr. Randall. Oh. We're inspectors for the Department of Agriculture. Oh, how do you do? Hello. Uh, what can I do for you? Well, I hate to tell you this, Mrs. Jones, but we're here on a kind of unpleasant mission. What's wrong? Well, the dairy company you sell your milk to has just reported to us a very unfavorable bacteria count on some of the milk from here. Oh, but they never said anything to me about it. Well, it's their duty to report to us first, Mrs. Jones. And our duty to check on your cows. Oh. You see, a lot of the dairy company's products are sold across the state line. And that makes it Uncle Sam's business to see that the quality meets federal standards of purity. Of, of course. Mrs. Jones, uh, how many cows in your herd? Well, I... There's only 12 heads. Mm-hmm. You gonna test them now? That's right. And if you... If you find some of them's deceased... Well, we'll have to condemn them. Oh. Yes, we'll have to take them with us, Mrs. Jones. Uh, but we're authorized to pay you a condemnation fee. But I I just can't afford to lose any. Even with the whole herd, I just barely make a living from them. Well, you wouldn't want to sell milk that you knew to be diseased, would you? No. Of course not. Uh, well, uh, the herd is down the pasture now. I'll go and get them into the barn for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jones. Well, now she fell for it okay. <laughs> we should clip her for the whole herd. Come on. boys. I'm giving you $200 a head for them cows. I thought you ran a slaughterhouse, Jenkins, not a clip. Now, let me handle this, Al. $200. That's my price. You better take another look at the weight figures, Jenkins. Price stands. Take it or leave it. Oh, look, we take all the risk getting these cows. Latimer, as far as I'm concerned, they're your own cows. I operate a legitimate licensed slaughterhouse. Who's kidding who? You're up to your ears in the black market same as we are. Now, look here. You said yourself three of the last head we brought you were disease. And they were, too. But you bought them from us, didn't you? Maybe you'd better take your cows to some other slaughterhouse. Oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, both of you. You've got us over a barrel, Mr. Jenkins, and you know it. So, just give us a dough. Hmm. Now you're talking sense. Here's your money. Count it if you like. Oh, I'm sure it's all there. 
you don't steal your money that way. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you think? Come on now. Right. We'll be seeing you, Mr. Jenkins. Good day. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, what did you settle so easy for? Because we couldn't take the cows anyplace else. They were worth more than he gave us. What he gave us was only a down payment. What do you mean? I think I know a way to tap that old geezer for plenty. It was a little earlier that same day when Special Agent Meade of the Des Moines field office of the FBI entered the office of Agent in Charge Clark. Did you send for me, Mr. Clark? Oh, yes, Meade. Looks like we've got an impersonation swindle case to go to work on. Oh? A couple of days ago, two men posing as inspectors of the Department of Agriculture condemned some cows on a farm near the city. Yes? They claimed these cows were diseased, said they were authorized to pay $50 a head for them, and did, then loaded the cows into a truck and drove away. The black market, no doubt. More than likely. But the act of impersonating a federal officer is our immediate angle. How do we hear about it? Well, the widow who owned the cows got suspicious later on, called the public health officer here in Des Moines. He just called me a minute ago. I guess he'd already checked with the Department of Agriculture. Yes, and I double-checked. What's the first move? You better drive out there right away and interview the victim. There may be others by now. That's why we want to work fast. What's her name? Mrs. Ruth Mason. Yeah. This is the location of her farm. Hmm. Okay. And Meade, get a good description of the men and any other lead you can and hurry back. Right. here by the stock pens. Right. There's old Jenkins coming out of the office now. Okay, stop the truck. We better get our dough for these cows before we spring the other deal on them. Shut up, here he comes. Now let me do the talking. Okay. Yeah. You fellas seem to be working pretty fast. Yeah, we don't believe in letting the grass grow under cows, Jenkins. Five dead, huh? Pretty good looking stuff, too. For change. Where'd you get him? Ain't you forgetting what you said? As far as you're concerned, all the cows we bring belong to us. All right, all right. Can you handle these? I can use all you get like that. That's fine. Al, huh? you run these over to the scales. Mr. Jenkins and I have got business to talk over. Okay. Can we go to your office? Sure. Come ahead. Go ahead in. All right. Well, what's on your mind, Latimer? You said you could handle all the cows we could get as good as those in the truck. That's right. Could you handle, say, say 150 hen? Where are you going to get that many? Could you handle them? Certainly. Well, then I can get them all right. Uh, there's just one hitch. What's that? Money. I don't get you. Now, look, we lay out cash for them animals. We ain't getting no 150 head unless we put the dough on the line. Oh. So, where do we get the cash? How much would they cost? Me or you? Hmm? Well, I'm supposed to make a profit, you know. And how much would they cost you? About a hundred a head. It's 
$15,000. Yeah, that's right. Who are you buying them from? <laughs> now, you ain't trapping me into a giveaway like that. <laughs> are you interested in putting up the dough? Maybe. Now, look, don't hedge. Are you or ain't you? How do I know this isn't a swindle? Well, you can come along if you want when I swing the deal. When would that be? Oh, right now, if you like. I don't keep that kind of money around the office. Hmm. Uh, when could you get it? Later in the day. Well, then we'll knock them off tonight. How much do you have to charge me for the cows? Usual rate. Two hundred a head. That's letting you fellas operate in my money and make a hundred percent profit. It's too much. Now look, Mr. Jenkins. Take it or leave it. I... Be here at my office tonight. Can I come in, Mr. Clark? Oh, yes. Come ahead, Mead. Did you talk to the woman out at the farm? Yes. Get any good leads? She gave a pretty good description of the two men. Anybody we know? I don't think so. Their names are Latimer and Randall. At least those are the names they used. Yes. But this might give us an even better lead. What's that? A woman was smart enough to make them give her a receipt for her cows. Oh, good for her. Latimer signed it. And no doubt left his fingerprints on it. Right. Well, first thing, we'll alert all local police and licensed slaughterhouses in the city and state. Give them the description of those two men. Yes, sir. And, Meade, while I'm getting that started, will you run that receipt through the lab for fingerprints? Right. I'd like to catch those fellas before they clean up and get out of the state. Okay. Good. There's a light on in Jenkins' office. Guess he's keeping our date all right. Will he have the dough with him? Well, sure. Why not? He didn't guarantee it this afternoon. Yeah, this sounds like too good a touch to him. He'll have it. Now, come on. Now, wait a minute. What's the matter? Look in and see if anybody's with him. By himself. Okay. Knock on the door. Come in. Come in. Go ahead, Al. All right. Well, how are you tonight, Mr. Jenkins? Let's get down to business. Yeah, that suits me fine. You, uh, you got the dough ready? I have. Well, where is it? In my pocket. The deal starts when it's in my pocket, Mr. Jenkins. Oh, no. I'm not giving up any money until I see those cows. You ain't seeing no cows. What does he mean? Uh, we're kind of changing the deal. Hmm? Well, that 15000 goes to us direct. What for? Well, sort of like a bonus. What are you talking about? Ah, quit wasting time with them, Chuck. Now, see here. What's this all about? You're paying us that 15 G's to keep quiet, Jenkins. What? You wouldn't like us to expose your operation here, would you? This is a licensed slaughterhouse, Latimer, and my books are clean. To a stranger, maybe, but not to the law. Look here. I've had enough of this. Oh, yeah? You're just trying to blackmail me. And what if we are? It won't work. No? No. Because I'm clean. You two are not. 
You couldn't report him to the law without getting slapped in jail yourselves, and you know it. Shut that angle ain't gonna work. It certainly is. Well, then I guess we'd better try another. The only thing that you can do is to get out of here and get out of here right now. Oh, that ain't the only thing. Get out, I say. Now, look, we came here for that 15 grand. We're gonna get it. Go to work, Al. With pleasure. Now, wait a minute. You can't. Now, if you'll grab his wallet, Al, we'll turn out the lights and close up office for the night. And now, before the FBI file on the slaughterhouse swindlers resumes, as it will in just a moment, here's that important message for homeowners and home buyers. This week, at the Equitable Life Assurance Society, we were talking about how a man feels when he lives in a home of his own. And someone said there's nothing like it. When you light that first fire in your fireplace, it's not like any fire that ever warmed you before. And the first flower you grow yourself in your own garden has a sweeter scent than any flower you ever smell before. Yes, a man who lives in a home of his own has satisfactions that the rent payer never knows. And that's why we of the Equitable Society take such pride in our assured home ownership plan, which offers home buyers security along with these five important advantages. One, the mortgage is canceled, paid off in full if owner dies. Besides, every dollar previously paid on principal is returned in full to the widow along with a canceled mortgage. Two, a special cash fund is built up, ready to be used if financial emergencies threaten the home. Three, this cash fund increases as the mortgage shrinks. It can be used to shorten the term of the mortgage, pay off a 20-year mortgage, for example, in as little as 14 years, saving six years' interest. Four, Mortgage interest not at 6%, not at 5%, but at only 4%. Five, liberal allowance to cover title search, lawyer's fees, and other closing costs. No broker's commission, no bonus charges. Well, frankly, there is no other plan like this anywhere. The Equitable Society calls it America's finest plan for home ownership. It protects you against the two major hazards of home mortgages, death and hard times. So if you're planning to buy or build a house, or if you now own a home, get complete information on the Assured Home Ownership Plan from your Equitable Society representative. That's the Equitable Society. E-Q-U-I-T-A-B-L-E. The Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. And now back to the FBI file, The Slaughterhouse Swindler. The professing good citizen who consorts or conspires with professional criminals to violate the law for personal gain is not only flirting with justice at the hands of the law, he is also courting personal disaster at the hands of those with whom he conspires. Because to criminals, the renegade citizen is not one of them. 
Rather, he is a pawn to be played by them when the time comes. And always, he is played for a sucker. It is nearly two hours now after the slaughterhouse operator, Jenkins, was beaten into unconsciousness by the cattle swindlers and robbed of $15,000. Agent in charge Clark of the Des Moines office of the FBI is at his desk talking with Special Agent Meade when... Clark speaking. Police headquarters, Mr. Clark. This is Sergeant Eaton. Oh, hello, Sergeant. We've got something that may tie in with those two men you're looking for. Oh? Well, just a minute. Meade. Yeah? Get on the other phone and catch this, too, will you? Right. All right, Sergeant. Go ahead. It's about a man named Jenkins who operates a slaughterhouse at the edge of town. Yes. The night watchman making his rounds found him beaten unconscious on the floor of his office a little over an hour ago. Mm -hmm. The watchman remembered hearing a truck drive into the yard earlier. I see. Just before he discovered Jenkins on the floor, he had heard the truck drive away. But he hadn't seen who was in it. No, with Jenkins on duty himself, he hadn't paid much attention. Where's the victim now, Sergeant? We got him to the city hospital. He just came to a little while ago. What did he have to say? Well, that's just it. He wouldn't talk. Well, we'll get on it right away and check with you later, Sergeant. Goodbye. Thanks a lot. Bye. I guess we better get over to the hospital right away. No, later. What? First, we're going to have a look around out at the slaughterhouse. Why? We just might find some evidence with which we can encourage Mr. Jenkins to talk. Come on. I told the nurse not to let anybody else in my room. We're special agents of the FBI, Mr. Jenkins. Oh, that's so. And I have nothing to say to you either. This is my affair. We have reason to believe it's our affair, too. What do you mean? We've just come from your slaughterhouse. What are we doing there? Investigating the crime. Crime? What crime? Crime that's put you in this hospital. Now, look here. Well? I have nothing to say. All right, then, we have. We happened to run across a special memo of some cattle transactions which were not entered in your regular ledger, Mr. Jenkins. Hey, what are we? You're trying to tell me how to keep my books? Maybe the government will get around to that later. What do you mean? Right now, we're interested in finding two men named Latimer and Randall. Well? Some of those special cattle deals, according to the memo, were made with them. What of it? Latimer and Randall are wanted for cattle swindling by posing as agents of the Department of Agriculture. They were just cattle dealers to me. And you bought the cattle they obtained by criminal methods. As far as I was concerned, the cattle were their own. Mr. Jenkins... I'd like to point out that we're in a position to justifiably charge you with conspiracy for receiving and selling property obtained by criminal methods. But how can you... If you're brought to court, you'd have to explain your books and special memos and all your slaughterhouse operations to some experts who might find something wrong with them. Well? How do you wish to know? Where are Latimer and Randall? I don't know. Who beat you up tonight? They did. Why? All I'm saying is they beat me up, stole $15,000 for me, and escaped in their truck. Can you describe their truck? It's a cattle truck, and the license number is written down in a notebook in my coat pocket. Made. Yes. Get the notebook, please, please. Right. 
Mr. Jenkins, the beating you got tonight is what you might expect and deserve for playing ball with criminals. Please. When we catch Latimer and Randall, we'll get the whole story behind your dealings with them. And if it's what I think it is, you'll have quite a bit of explaining to do. Hey, wait, slow up, Al. Time to a fork in the highway. So, okay, we take the left turn to Kansas City. How do you know? I marked out the whole route on that map there. Okay, then keep going. Hey, Chuck. Yeah? Maybe we ought to get rid of this truck. Maybe it's getting hot by now. Yeah, I've been thinking of that already. So, what do we do? The next town we hit, we kiss it goodbye and borrow somebody else's car. Here's the truck, Mr. Clark. We found it abandoned on a side street here earlier this morning. I see. And just a while ago, a man reported his car stolen during the night. Well, that sounds like two and two to me, officer. Well, that's what we figured. Made. Yes? Well, I'm taking down the information on the stolen car. Will you have a look in the truck? Right. What's the description of the stolen car, officer? Black Chevrolet sedan, 41 model. Sedan, 41 model. Huh? Iowa license, 426. 426. 73. Mr. Clark. Yes? Look at this map I found on the seat. What about it? Pencil mark tracing the whole route from Des Moines to Kansas City. Oh? You think maybe they might be... I think we're going to get an alarm on this stolen car right away and then head for Kansas City. Okay, Al, we didn't come to Kansas City for a rest. Let's get busy. On what? I got a slaughterhouse all lined up to do business with us. But we ain't got a truck. Well, we're going to use one of theirs. Okay, where do we go first? Well, we're following our same plan. I got number one spotted. Come on, let's ride. Oh, yes, Maiden. Latimer and Randall are in Kansas City. They're not in a hotel. No? I spent all morning with our agents and the police here checking. No trace of them. No sign of a stolen car either? Not yet. Maybe this other thing will turn them up. What's that? Well, the county farm agent here in Kansas City has been helping me all morning make a lot of telephone calls. I don't get it. Well, Meade, I studied all those jobs that Latimer and Randall pulled around Des Moines. Yeah? And I think I've hit on the pattern of their operation. Really? And if I'm right... Well, if I'm right, maybe the phone is ringing right now with a proof. Mrs. Gilmer, we're sorry to have to report that we find five of your cows diseased. Good heavens, Mr. Latimer. That, that's going to be quite a blow to me. Well, the five head won't be a total loss to you, however. What do you mean? Well, as I told you when I made the appointment for this test, we're authorized to pay you a condemnation fee. Well, at least that's something. Come on, Randall. We'll start loading the cows in the truck. Okay. Those cows are staying right here, Latimer. Hey, but who says? What's the idea and who are you? We're special agents of the FBI. Do you want to hear any more? Put up your hands, G-men. Sure, Randall. Sure, we'll put up our hands. Maybe you won't object if I use mine like this. 
Here, mate. Take his gun. Right. Thanks for cooperating with us, Mrs. Gilmer. And thanks to you, Latimer, for your policy of cheating widows only. It made it a lot easier for us to catch you. Come on. Arranged in a federal court on the charge of impersonating agents of the U.S. government, Latimer and Randall were found guilty and sentenced to the penitentiary. The findings at their trial also enabled FBI agents later to bring the slaughterhouse operator Jenkins to justice and bring about his conviction on a charge of conspiracy. Latimer and Randall, as professional criminals, were enemies of society. But Jenkins, a professing good citizen... Because he conspired with criminals and betrayed the welfare of those whom he would call fellow citizens, Jenkins was that something far morally worse than an enemy of society. He was a Benedict Arnold of society. And it is his kind which does more damage to the moral structure of society than all of its openly avowed enemies combined. Now, before we tell you about next week's story from the files of your FBI, may I remind you that the Equitable Society's Assured Home Ownership Plan is a money-saving plan every step of the way. Naturally, we can't give you every detail here. But your Equitable Life Assurance Society representative can. He has literature that you can study. And once you get the facts, you'll be quick to agree that here's America's finest home ownership plan. Phone him tomorrow. Call the number of the Equitable Life Assurance Society. E-Q-U-I-T-A-B-L-E. The Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. Next week, we will bring you another colorful story from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, The Sinister Lighthouse. The incidents used in tonight's Equitable Life Assurance Society's broadcast are adapted from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. Tonight, the music was composed and conducted by Frederick Steiner, the author was Frank Ferries, and your narrator was Dean Carlton. This is your FBI, is a Jerry Devine production. And now this is Carl Frank, speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community, and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time when the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States will bring you another colorful story from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The Sinister Lighthouse. On this... 
is your FBI. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. It's time now for the news of the day. Dateline Boston on January 19, 1950. The Brinks Armored Car Depot in Boston, Massachusetts was burglarized by a group of 11 men wearing Halloween masks. The actual robbery took 30 minutes to complete, netting the robbers some $2.7 million. The perpetrators were caught because of one of the men involved in the crime, Joseph Spex O'Keefe. He had been apprehended for another crime and threatened to cooperate with authorities. After a botched attempt to assassinate O'Keefe, he made an agreement with the FBI and made a deal to testify against his accomplices. The first Peanuts comic strip was published on October 2, 1950, and was initially shown in seven different newspapers. The comic was created by Charles Schultz and featured the classic character Charlie Brown. The comic became a beloved strip and ran in newspapers until February of 2000, when the last Peanuts comic strip hit the presses a day after Charles Schultz's sudden death. The first independent credit card company is created by Frank McNamara in February of 1950. The Diners Club credit card was the first multi-purpose charge card, and within a year of beginning operations, the company had over 40,000 members. Soon after that, businesses in other countries began to accept the Diners Club card as a form of payment, making it the first international credit card in 1953. In May of 1950... Vigo and Emil Hojgaard found the mummified body of a 4th century man in a peat bog on the Jutland Peninsula in Denmark. After its discovery, the body was excavated and examined as if it had been a recent murder victim, as he had been so well preserved. The men who discovered him called the police to report a crime. The police determined that the body was prehistoric and had belonged to a man between the age of 30 and 40 who had died by hanging while being sacrificed to the gods and buried in the peat bog by his village over 2,400 years ago. And that concludes this edition of the News of the Day. The following crime drama is probably the most well-known police procedural program in radio as well as in television. Dragnet was the brainchild of Jack Webb, Sergeant Joe Friday. His desire to keep it real moved him to enlist the help of the Los Angeles Police Department. His attention to detail, using actual police terminology, kept people glued to their radios. This episode is the seventh episode that was broadcast on radio and the first to be broadcast on television. It is called the Attempted City Hall Bombing. And what is unique about this episode was in the radio version, he is very descriptive of the location, City Hall. In the television version, he used the actual City Hall as a set piece. From July 21, 1949, and the NBC radio network, it's Jack Webb in the attempted City Hall bombing on Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet.
a detective sergeant. You've been off duty two hours. You receive an emergency call from the chief of detectives. An entire block in the heart of your city is threatened with complete destruction. Your job, report at once. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, November 15th. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were off duty reporting in on an emergency call. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 8.32 a.m. when I walked in the Spring Street entrance of the city hall. You Sergeant Friday? Yeah, that's right. Uh, take my elevator, Sergeant. It's the only one in service. All right. I'll run you up to 16. The chief's waiting for you up there. What's the pitch? Only one elevator in service out of 10? The place looks deserted. What's going on? Nobody in the building. All the office people have been sent home. Lots of trouble. Somebody declare a holiday? No joke, Sergeant. Big trouble. All right, you convinced me. What is it? Here we are. 16th floor. Over here, Friday. Hi, Joe. Hello, Ben. You made good time. Came as soon as I got the call, Ed. Sorry to have to bring you back in. You worked last night, didn't you? Yeah, midnight to eight this morning. Sorry. Come on. Okay. What is it, Skipper? Why all the hush? Uh... Wait till we get inside. In here. Okay. Number one, let's keep our voices down. Yeah, all right. I'll make it as brief as I can. Every minute counts. What time you got, Friday? 8.33. All right, here it is. 55 minutes ago, a man walked into this building with a homemade bomb under his arm. If we don't release his brother from the county jail by 9 o'clock this morning, he says he'll pull the trigger on the bomb and blow up the whole building. He's kidding, Skipper. Who is the guy? Name's Vernon Carney. Here's his package. He and his brother have been in and out of jail since 1937. Small-time thieves. Yeah. Where's the FBI kickback? We had him once before, both of them. Brother's name is Elwood, serving a year for car stripping. And this two-bit thief is sitting here in the city hall with a bomb on his lap? That's right. In the next room. What kind of a bomb is it, Ed? You think he's bluffing? Could be bluffing, but the crime lab says no. Lee Jones from the lab get a look at it? Been in there twice. One end of the box is glass. Says you can't see much without a closer look, but you can't get near the guy. What do you want us to do? It's a volunteer job. You can take it or leave it. I won't order you to do it. How you want to handle it? You sure you want a piece of this one, Romero? No, he doesn't, Ed. He's got a family. Get me another single man. We'll give it a try. Wait a minute, Joe. What makes this, do- this job so different? Anytime we kick a door in, we never know what's on the other side. That's what makes it different. This time we do. No, you're not going to cut me out. Not the only time I know what I'm getting into. All right. Chandler's tried. Hannon, Davis, Watson, they've all tried. This guy, Connie, knows what he's doing. He's no pushover. But somebody's got to get that bomb away from him. Friday, Romero, it's your baby now. I looked at my watch. It was 8.36. We left Backstrand and started down the hall. If Carney was going to make good his threat to blow up the building by 9 o'clock, we had exactly 24 minutes to talk him out of it. Ben and I figured we'd better look him over first and then work out some kind of a plan. Maybe just talking to him would do it. Vernon Carney was sitting in a straight-back chair against the far wall facing the door. He was seated between two windows that looked out over the city. 
Along the left wall was a row of six wooden chairs. In the center of the right wall was a connecting door leading to the office where Backstrand had briefed us. The door was locked on both sides. Just off center and favoring the left of the room was a small filing table. The other furniture in the office was a desk just forward of the connecting door on the right. There was a dictaphone on the desk. In the near left corner, shielded by a white screen, was a small wash basin. The faucet leaked. Vernon Carney was middle-aged. He sat erect, holding a black box on his lap. He held his right hand inside one end of the box. Ben and I stood there for a minute and looked at him. Then we walked in the room. What do you say to a man with a bomb? That's close enough. Cigarette, Carney? I'm not smoking right now. What are you trying to prove? You know what I want. We're not going to let your brother out of jail. You got until 9 o'clock to change your mind. According to that clock on the wall, you got 24 minutes. If we go, you're going with us, Carney. Don't take much of a brain to figure that, copper. What made you think you could get away with that? Haven't yet. It ain't 9 o'clock. Unless that clock's slow. Haven't checked it against my pocket watch lately. That's the one that's running this show. Have you given any thought to all the innocent people that are going to go up with that thing of yours there? My brother's innocent. I want him out of jail. The court says he's guilty. He'll get out when he serves his time. That's where you're wrong, copper. He gets out at 9 o'clock this morning. All right, come on, Carney. Get your hand out of that box. Put the box on the table. You think I'm bluffing, don't you? I'm going to let you get within five feet before I make a liar out of you. Okay, Kearney. I guess you mean business. You can take three more steps and find out for sure. Suppose we did let your brother out. We'd just come out and pick him up again, you along with him? If you could find us. Let's get this straight. If we let your brother Elwood out, how do we know you're going to keep your promise? What promise? I ain't made any promises. You just get Elwood down here first, and then we'll talk about it. There's only one thing I can't figure, Carney. Yeah, what's that? If we don't let your brother out, you say you'll pull the trigger on that bomb. You're going to kill a lot of innocent people. What are you going to prove by that? It's 8.37. You've got 23 minutes left. Now, I wish you'd answer that one for me. Why do you want to kill a lot of innocent people? Don't try to con me, copper. I know they cleared everybody out of this building 45 minutes ago. I know they cleaned out the whole block. They got it roped off. Where'd you get your information? I got a couple of windows here to look out of. Don't you think it's about time to send somebody over to get Elwood? You know, Carney, we've got a way out of this. We don't have to let your brother out, neither. I've heard that before. What's to stop us from leaving the building along with the other few officers and let you sit here and touch off that bomb? Go ahead. It won't be a long wait without you. Who are you trying to kid? You'd let me blow up $10 million worth of taxpayers' money? <laughs> Ah, uh, no. You're going to let Elwood out. You'll wait till the last minute to do it. But you'll let him out. Ed, I'm still not convinced Carney can back up what he says. Then why didn't you take the box away from him? Yeah. We're in a spot, let's face it. How about an eye for an eye, Skipper? What do you mean? If he pulls the trigger on that machine, he kills us. How about us getting him first? All right, Romero. 
How are you going to handle it? Well, I'm not top man on the pistol range, but I could wing him. And then he hands the box to you? Or maybe he falls and his reflex action pulls the trigger. Okay, I don't wing him. I stop him for keeps. You just can't walk in there and shoot him down. Why not? You do the same thing with armed criminals? Yeah, but you warn him first. I warn him. Yeah, and after you shoot him, you find out it's a harmless gadget. Couldn't have gone off in a million years. No, no, a gun's not the answer. We can't shoot him until we're positive. We'll be positive by 9 o'clock, and there might not be anybody around to shoot him. We've located Carney's apartment. There's a detail out there checking it now. Pacelli and Morris. Ed, have you got any ideas at all? Anything we could try? That's why I called you in. None of us have gotten any further than you did just now. There's just one thing I want to know for sure. Yeah, Friday. Is it or isn't it? We all want to know. Either way, we've got to get that box away from him. Backstrand. Yeah. You did? Yeah. No, stay out there till I call you. All right, here's half the answer. That was Pacelli. They found 28 sticks of dynamite in Carney's apartment. We knew Carney wasn't kidding now. We could see into the bomb through that glass window in one end. It looked like dynamite inside, and there was dynamite in Carney's room. We didn't know if he had the nerve to pull the trigger. We didn't know if it would go off when he did. But with only minutes remaining, nobody wanted to take the chance. From here on in, all of us agreed that Vernon Carney sat in the next room, holding in his two hands a force powerful enough to destroy us all. We had to get that box away from him, and to get that box, we had to have a plan. I looked at my watch. It was 8.40. 20 minutes till 9 o'clock. How do we get it away from him? I got an idea. It might work. Let's have it. Carney's sitting against the far wall between two windows. They're both open. Yeah, that's right. All right, if we could get a man through one of those windows, we might get Carney from behind. How are you going to get him? Whoever gets through the window could slug him. What do you do then? Somebody grabs the box. The crime lab can tell us what to do with it. How do we get a man through one of those windows? We're on the 16th floor. Well, there's some kind of a ledge that runs around the building on each story. Wide enough for a man to walk on? And let's take a look. All right. Looks pretty narrow, Joe. That's a good 18 inches. Could be done. Oh, too risky. It's raining out. That ledge is slippery. Strong wind out there, Joe. Tear a man right off the building. Yeah, I guess you're right. Well, there's still a way. How about a ladder? Sixteen floors, Skipper. There might be a way. The fire department would know that. I'll get Battalion Chief Erickson. Is Lee Jones in the building? No, he's over in the crime lab. I'll get him up here, too. I don't know, Friday. Maybe it'll work. It's got to, Ed. All right, now look. It's going to take a couple of minutes to set this up. We've got to know what Carney's doing every second of that time. Well, how about the dictaphone in there on the desk? Good. Get it on without him seeing you. We'll try. The dictaphone in there is connected to this one in here. This room is 1614. You got that? Yeah. All right, push down key 1614 on that machine in there and leave it down. Get the receiver off the hook and leave it off. Leave the receiver off. That's right. You know, if it isn't off the hook, we won't be able to hear a thing in here. All right. Come on, Ben. This is back, friend. Give me Chief Erickson. Where's my brother? Still in his cell. You coppers are long on talk, but short on time. Yeah, we know. I'm telling you, for your own good, you'd better get Elwood over here. Carney, I'll bet if we get your brother on the phone here, he'll tell you he doesn't want any part of this. You mean Elwood don't want out? Since when? Sure he wants out, but not your way. He's only got a year to serve. Why don't you leave him alone? I told El. I told him I'd get him out. He didn't think I could do it. But I'm doing it. I'll make you a bet, Carney. Let us get your brother on the phone. He won't walk out of here with you. All right, get him on the pipe. Where you going? The phone's over here. Have to use the dictaphone. Got to get an okay from the chief. Elwood's still a prisoner. What's the matter with the phone? No operators. You know the building's been cleared. Oh, yeah. That's right. Almost forgot. Okay, you can use the dictaphone. This Friday, Ed. Carney wants to talk to his brother. 
Yeah, I know you'll have to send somebody over. Have them put the call on extension... Uh, wait a minute. What's that extension number, Ben? 2351. 2351, Ed. Right. It'll take a minute. Yeah. I'd kind of like to talk to L. Been a couple of months since I seen him. We've always been together, me and L, most of the time. Joe, let's go in and see if we can hurry that call. Good idea, boy. Sixteen minutes to nine. Hey, cop. Yeah. Forgot to hang up the dictaphone, didn't you? I put the receiver back on the dictaphone. Ben and I had failed to make good on the first step of the plan. When we got outside the door, we briefed Davis and Watson. They went in to sit with Carney. It would be their job to keep us posted on Carney's movements. The dictaphone was out. We went back into the office next door. Chief Sam Erickson of the fire department and Lieutenant Lee Jones from the crime lab were already there. We told Backstrand what happened. Would have been a help. We haven't got time to cry over it. Carney's wide awake, Skipper. He doesn't miss a thing. Backstrand told us the plan Friday. We can't run a ladder up from the street. Too high, Chief? Best we got is a 100-foot aerial. You figure 12 foot to the story, that'll take you up 96 feet, eight floors. And we've got the latest equipment. What's the idea you had, Jones? Sam, can you get hold of a pump here in a hurry? Sure, we got a lot of scaling ladders, but you got nothing up there to hook them on. You figure on dropping down from the floor above? That's right, and I figure a pump here would do it. Sure it would. You could make it faster the windowsill up there, but you got a foot and a half ledge in the way. No, what you want is a lifeline. You mean lower a man on a rope, Chief? Yeah, Romero. That's the quickest and the quietest. Could you rig it so one of my boys could do it? Sure, Ed. What's the risk? None, if you work it right. We'll strap on a life belt, give the man heavy leather gloves. Two of my men will lower him down. Uh, pick your lightest man. What do you think, Lee? That's it. What do we do with the bomb when we get it? I figure that box Connie's holding is about a foot square. Here's what I'll do. I'll get you a bucket with a foot and a half mouth. It'll be full of water. Yeah? I'll have it right outside the door of that office. When you get that box, place it in the water. We'll get the bucket out of the building as fast as we can. And once we get the bomb underwater, we're in a clear. And I can't promise you that, but it's the safest way to handle it under the circumstances. All right, that's the procedure. Sam, you take care of your end. Right away. I'll get a detail to give me a hand down on the street. We'll have a car ready to take the bomb to a safe area to decommission it. Work as fast as you can. Come on, Sam. It's our baby, Joe. That's right. Which part of it you want, the rope or the bomb? You call it. Fire Chief Erickson says the lightest man on the rope. That's me, Joe. All right, I'll get the bomb out of the building. Okay, that's the routine. But carry this with you. The man that comes down on that rope has one chance to make good. You slug him and make it count because there's no second try. Yeah. And Joe, when you grab that box, you've got to get it away from Carney before he can squeeze the trigger. Then you've got to get it down into the street. The elevator. You know how to operate it? That's well, pretty simple, but I'll double-check with the operator. Better do it right now. Okay. Ed, we better get Carney's brother on the phone for him. He seemed anxious. Might be a pretty good stall. All right, Romero, that's the outside phone. Get the city jail. All right, Skipper. Get going, Friday. Okay. Hey, you. Elevator man. Uh, yeah, Sergeant. Let me see if I know how to work that thing. You taking over the elevator? Well, in a couple of minutes. You want to check me out? Nothing to it, Sergeant. All right. Now, here's the control, see? Uh -huh. You push this lever right to go up, left to go down. You see this little trigger on the underside of the handle? Yeah. That's the safety lock. Be sure you squeeze it or you can't move the lever. Let me try it, huh? That's it. Uh -huh. Right to go up, uh -huh. left to go down. Right to go up, left to go down. How do you operate the doors? Automatic. They work off the control lever. When the control lever is locked in the up or down position, the doors will close. I get it. Now, in case they jam... This red emergency button up here? Yeah. Push it. If that doesn't close them, we call the repairman. Okay. I think I got it. You sure now? I've had my orders to get out of the building. I'll just leave the elevator right here and take the stairs down. All right. 
Thanks a lot. Uh, Sergeant, hmm? uh, just curious. You going to take the bomb down in this car? We're going to try. You won't have any trouble. We haven't had an elevator failure in 18 months. The elevator man turned and went down the stairs. Outside of a handful of volunteers and a man with a bomb, the city hall was now cleared. I started down the corridor and met Ben outside the office. He told me that Lee Jones and Chief Erickson were on their way up in the freight elevator at the rear of the building with the necessary equipment. The two fire department volunteers were with them. The phone call had been put through to the city jail, and in a moment, Elwood Carney would be ready at the other end of the line. We went in to tell Carney. I told him over at the jail to put the call through on extension 2351. Yeah. When's it coming through? Right now. Right. You got Elwood with you? No. Look, Carney, we told you we'd get him on the phone for you. The call will be through in a minute. Minutes a long time, cop. You only got 12 of them left. Elwood's going to talk you out of this. Oh, sure. Sure, everybody's going to talk me out of this. First, it was them other two cops, the little porky guy and that other monkey. Then you and this Dixie Doughhead here. Now it's Elwood. Come off it, will you, and get my brother over here. That's him. It's your brother, Connie. I'll get him. Stay put, you. Just going to get the phone. You want to talk to your brother, don't you? I'll take care of the phone. We'll disconnect it for a while. Now get it straight, copper. I'm through with your stinking rotten lying. I want Elwood here. And I want him now. Bring him here before I blow you all to pieces. What's going on? Who threw that phone out in the hall? I did. You want me to go out and pick it up? Carney, that's not going to get you any place. You the big boss around here? Maybe. Are you or aren't you? I answered you. All right, big boy. I've got a piece of advice for you. Take your rookie cops here and get it through their heads. I mean what I say. I want my brother over here in this room. And you've got just 11 minutes to get it done. Tell him that, will you, boy? All right, Carney. It's your show. All right, we've got to work fast now. Jones, everything set for you? Got the bucket with the water right here. Car's waiting down in the street. Right. Erickson, your boy's ready? Upstairs, waiting. And we all know what to do. Ed, i got to have somebody to give me a hand with Carney when he falls. I'll be in there with you, Friday. Ready to go upstairs, Chief? Anytime. Oh, one thing you ought to know. What's that? Strong wind coming up. About 20 mile an hour out there right now. That going to louse us up? No, but it's going to increase the sway. Got to allow for it. How you mean? Well, wind's coming from the south. We'll lower you just to the right of the window. If I figure it correctly, wind will do the rest. Bigger risk, but we don't control the weather. How you going to do it, Ben? As soon as I get in position, I'll reach in through the window on his right. I'll use the belly. Try to catch him on the right side of his head. One good hit should put him away. Let's make it two and be sure, huh? Right. You ready, G? Now let's go. Ben. Yeah? Nothing. I'll be careful. You too, huh? What's the time, Friday? 8.50. Shouldn't take more than a couple of minutes for Romero to get down to that window. Unless the wind gives them trouble. Jones, no use you sticking around. I'll give Friday a hand. That's my job. We've got to keep you alive to decommission the bomb. Bomb joke. See you downstairs. You ready, Ed? Yeah. Scared, Friday? Yeah. That makes us even. Come on. Ed Backstrand and I went into the next room with Vernon Carney. Our job was to keep him occupied until Ben was lowered to the windowsill from the floor above. 
Ben was going to make a try from the window on Carney's right. Somehow, we had to keep Carney's attention on us and away from that window. If anything went wrong and Carney got out of position, the plan would fail. If Ben was spotted, the plan would fail. If Chief Erickson didn't estimate the force of the wind correctly, the plan would fail. After Ben slugged Carney, my timing had to be perfect. If it wasn't, the plan would fail. I looked at my watch. It was eight minutes to nine. Carney, anything we can say that'll make you change your mind? I've asked you a hundred times. Now I'm ordering you. You're going to get to a phone and have somebody send Elwood over here right now. I'm through waiting. Now move. You ripped out the phone, Carney. Well, find another one. I told you I'm sick of your two-bit stalling. We've got until nine o'clock to make up our mind about this. You had until nine. But you wouldn't do what I told you. Now I'm cutting you short. You guys have got exactly one minute to get a phone in this room where I can hear you call the jail and have him send Elwood over here. You said nine, Carney. All right, Joe. We'll give him what he wants. Davis, unlock the connecting door to this office. I'll get the phone, Ed. Will the cord reach? Yeah. Your brother's a prisoner. He's in our custody and he's under our protection. We can't place his life in jeopardy. Why not leave it up to Al? Here's the phone, Ed. Yeah. Kenworthy, this is Backstrand. We want Elwood Carney over here at City Hall. His brother wants to see him. Explain the situation. If he wants to come, get him over here. Leave it up to him. Room 1614. You'll have to use the freight elevator. And tell him to hurry. Yeah. Tell him to hurry. That's the only smart thing you've done today. Now, why don't you go next door and figure out another angle? We'll wait for Elwood, too. You don't think I'd let you get out now, do you? We're all going to wait right here for my brother. In case he don't show up, you're going to see me pull the plug. Just sit down. Not so close. Right where you are, sit down. Loud clock, ain't it? Windy. Getting cold in here. Sure a loud clock. Real windy. Maybe I ought to close the windows. Don't want to catch me a cold. I can turn on the heat. Stay put, cop. Hey, what's that? What's going on? Just the wind. Shut up. There's somebody out there. I can see his feet. You stupid cops! Pull him up! Get back there! You pull him up! Freddy, tell him to pull him up. Right. All right, Carney, you win. You bet I win, you dumb coppers. You didn't think I'd miss a trick like that? We'll just close these windows, boys. There's one, and lock it. And here's here's your brother, Carney. Yeah. Hi, Al. Hi, Vern. You did it. I told you. I told you I'd do it, didn't I? That's far enough for the rest of you. Al, come on over here. You're crazy, Vern. You're crazy. That's what they've been trying to tell me. We're going home, Al. How are you going to do it? There's a million cops outside. People all over town heard about this. 
They're holding the crowd back. They ain't gonna stop us now, Al. You'll never make it. Either one of you. I got him this far, didn't I? We'll make it. Fern, you think we could do it? Hey, you. Yeah? You're gonna get a car ready for us, a fast one. Have it in front of the building. Move! All right, Franny, do what he tells you. Right. Hold it. Yeah. If you ain't back by 9 o'clock, the deal still holds. I told him I'd pull the pin at 9, L, if they didn't let you out. You ain't fooling, are you, Vern? Will that gadget really blow? Four miles high. You know what that means, Al? Yeah, but they won't let you pull it. We're getting out. All right, copper. Get the car. You've got four minutes. Hey, Ben, Ben. What happened? He spot me? Yeah, there's no time to explain. Now, listen, we've got to work fast. Yeah. We had to bring Carney's brother over from the jail. I don't think he cares if they get out or not. He just wants to use that bomb, and for some crazy reason, he's waiting until nine. How much time we got? Let me look. Less than four minutes. How about the ledge? You think you can do it? Strong wind. You'll have to hang on like a fly. I don't know. I can give it a try. Okay. Same plan. Every second counts. Now, I can't brief Ed. He's in the room with the guy. It's up to you and me. I'll get on the ledge from one of these offices. I hope I'll make it. If you don't, we'll know you tried. Hurry. Hey, Ben, wait a minute. Yeah? I forgot. The windows. The one on his right. He locked it. You'll have to crawl around to the one on the left. You got it? Right. Okay. The car will be ready in two minutes. Out front. Fine. Ellen, I'll just sit here and wait. Gonna be good being back together, Hyle. We always were real good together, Vern. Yeah, that's the way brothers ought to be together all the time. Together. Uh, Vern, I'd feel better with a gun. We don't need no gun, Al. We got the bomb. We'll need a gun when we get out, when we get on the road. Okay. Take your pick. They all got them. Hey, you, give him yours. I'm not carrying a gun. I left it in the other room. A cop without a gun? Who's kidding who? I left it in the other room. Frisk the big boy, Al. He's got one. About time for the car, ain't it? Two minutes to nine. Yeah, this feels like it. Right on his hip. Vern, hey, look out! Grab him, Joe. I got him. Yeah. Get the box. Leave that gun alone. I got him, Ben. I gotta get his hand out of it. Run, Joe. Get it in the water. Run! shared an elevator with a live bomb. It seemed like minutes between floors. I kept watching the bucket. The bomb was completely underwater. A small stream of bubbles was hissing to the surface. I waited. Main floor. I picked up the bucket and ran for the street. I missed the first step. I fell forward. The bucket spun out of my hand. I sprawled flat on the sidewalk. I waited for the explosion. It didn't go off Friday. Yeah. I gave it a good chance, Lee. It was all there. Look. 
At least a dozen sticks of dynamite. Snyder, bring that over here. Here you are, Lieutenant. Thanks. Here's why it didn't go off. Mm-hmm. Had it rigged for a hard trigger pull. Would have taken a good yank to set this one off. Yeah. Hi, Joe. Hi, Ben. Clumsy. The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Vernon Carney was examined by five different psychiatrists appointed by the Superior Court and was found to be incompetent. He is now confined in the state mental institution for the criminally insane. Elwood Carney is now serving the balance of his sentence with no time off for good behavior. You have just heard the seventh in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet is furnished by the Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Town Marshal Lon T. Larson of the Mount Pleasant, Utah Force, who, on the night of October 15, 1945, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. The early dragnets always had a memorial added to the end of the show where they portrayed a fallen hero in the line of duty. Up next, a rather odd little police drama called In the Name of the Law. In the Name of the Law, we bring you another of the thrilling stories in this exciting series taken from actual police case files. While being in the pre-dragnet days, it can be excused for using what we would call today a little bit of Hollywood. The year 1936 saw many firsts, the Hindenburg launch, the first Baseball Hall of Fame game, and Billboard magazine published its first music hit parade. In the Name of the Law made its radio debut at that time. In the Name of the Law was a police dramatization based on real police cases from around the country. The shows follow the case through to the end, from murder to theft. The writers use their vivid imaginations to provide interesting dialogue to move the story along and provide drama. Our thanks goes out to the old-time radio catalog for this description. From June 2, 1936, Who Killed Francis? on In the Name of the Law. In the Name of the law. We bring you another of the thrilling stories in this exciting series, taken from actual police case files. Our story begins outside a Detroit factory. Oh, 
Thanks for the lift, Joe. That was a big help. Oh, don't mention it, Charlie. Hey, how about me waiting for you? Well, I just want to leave these lamb chops for my sister. I'll be back right away. Oh, say, wait a minute. Uh, say, Charlie, I haven't seen Francis for a long time. Mind if I say hello? Oh, come on along. She'll be glad to see you. All right. Here. Let's just go around the back way here. How's she been? Oh, fine. Had her 55th birthday last Wednesday. Never looked better or felt younger. Oh, you bomb holes are lucky to have a sister like Francis to look after you. <laughs> Don't we know it? Especially John and my nephew George. She's still keeping house here for them just as she did for Augustine and me. Father Augustine. <laughs> Francis certainly had a dream come true when her brother became a priest. Yeah, it's her greatest pride. Tops her other pride keeping a clean house and setting a good table. <laughs> we'll kid her a little bit. Uh, let's tell her we dropped in to eat these lamb chops. In a hurry, oh, too. Right. Well, here we are. Francis. Francis. Here's your Wednesday special. I like my lamb chops. Well done, Miss Palmholt. Francis. Francis. Honey, doesn't seem to be around. Well, she must be here. She was expecting me. No sign of lunch getting ready in the kitchen here. No. Hey, think she could have taken sick? Uh, I don't think so. George is here. She'd have called him. Maybe she didn't want to disturb him. Isn't he still working on that night shift? Yeah, at the River Rouge packing plant. He sleeps in that room right down the hallway. Hmm. Must be a heavy sleeper, or else all the noise we made would have woke him up. Hmm. Say, maybe Francis is asleep. Well, Francis is asleep in the daytime? Say, she works from morning till night. Well, let me look in her bedroom, though, just to make sure. Francis? Francis? Are you sleeping? Francis? Francis. Oh, Francis. Francis. She's praying. She's praying? What? She's dead. Murdered. And kneeling there beside her bed with a rosary in her hand. Merciful heaven. Oh, my, my poor sister. Don't touch that. Hmm, what's the matter, Inspector? That doorknob. There's blood stains on it. Oh, yeah. See it plainly now. Whose room is this? I think it's John Baumholt's room. You know, their brother, eh? That's so many of these relatives. Yes. Right? They may all be innocent, but it sure looks like an inside job to me. How do you figure that, Inspector? You'll see for yourself. Now, look, Reed. We want photographs and fingerprints taken on this doorknob. Yes, Inspector. You got all those relatives outside? Yes, sir. Father Baumholt telephoned. He would be here any minute, too. It must have been a shock to him. Yes, her favorite brother, I understand. Let's have another look at Miss Baumholt's room. I guess the coroner's about finished. What's the verdict, Jim? Inspector, Miss Baumholt was killed sometime between 6 and 7 o'clock this morning. She died from these blows on the head. She couldn't have been killed kneeling there by the side of her bed, could she? Well, that's the question, Inspector. There are no signs of a struggle in this room. If there was a struggle here, that nephew George should have heard her. Hey, how do you figure that rosary, Inspector? Heaven help her. She died in prayer. How did she have strength to get her rosary? What do you mean by that? It's this way, Jim. She could have been placed in that kneeling position, that rosary put in her hand. I wonder if someone sent her to eternity and then tried to help her with prayer. Hey, what's this on the floor? I was just noticing that myself. Is it gravel? No, something else. Here. There's a few specks of it on the palm of my hand. Looks like coal dust to me. Hmm. Coal dust on an otherwise spotless floor. You're right, Jim. Doesn't make sense. From all I hear, this poor woman was a spotless housekeeper and wouldn't go around tracking the place up with coal dust. Reed. Yes, Inspector. 
Get those rel- relatives together outside in the kitchen. I'll be out there in a minute. Yes, sir. Jim, as coroner, you've handled a lot of crimes with me. Now, just let the... best friend I had in the world. And I slept right through everything. All right, now, I don't think it's so hard, George. It wasn't your fault. I expect that he was awfully fond of his aunt. Sure. Uh, Mr. Baumholt, Mr. Charles Baumholt, you'll have to straighten me out on this family relationship again. Well, certainly, Inspector. Miss Baumholt kept house for your brother John here and your nephew George, is that right? Yes, Inspector. We got my brother here from work as soon as we could. John, what time did you leave the house this morning? Right after breakfast, around a quarter to six. As early as that? I'm due at the office at six o'clock. And your sister cooked breakfast for you, is that right, John? Yeah. Was anyone at your office when you got there? No. I work in the accounting department and open it up at six. First clerk comes in at seven. Do you punch a time clock? No. Is there any way of proving you were at your office at six o'clock? You doubt my word. Oh, never mind, John. Ah, what right has he got to be asking me questions like that? John? There were bloodstains on the knob of your bedroom door. What? Bloodstains on my door? Yes, just as plain as the doorknob. Poor Andy. Now, now, look, Inspector. None of us killed that good woman in there. Can your brother John prove he was at his office between 6 and 7 o'clock this morning? That's all I want to know. Well, there there must be some way. You can prove it, can't you, John? I'm all alone there between 6 and 7. Let them take my fingerprints. Compare them with those on the doorknob. They won't be mine. All right, John, all right. You'll have a chance to prove everything. Why don't you go out and look for the murderer? Maybe it was a tramp who came along. My sister was always giving poor bums a meal. Yes, she was a good woman. Always helping everybody. Dodds, did you see your Uncle John leave here this morning? Yes, I I saw him leave right after breakfast. George, you work on the night shift, I understand. Yes, Inspector. What time do you go to bed? Right after breakfast. I I went to sleep right after Uncle John left this morning for work. Was your aunt expecting anybody this morning? Mm, Not that I know of. How about you, John, and you, Charlie? Do you know of anyone who might have called on your sister? No, John, did your sister have any money in this house? Why ask me? Never mind why. I'm asking you. Yeah, she had a little money. Inspector Smith. Uh, yes, Reed. Inspector, there's an old woman at the front door. She wants to come in. Who is she? She says she bakes bread for the bombholes and wants to leave some now. Oh, uh, oh yes, that's Mrs. Becker. She's a poor old lady, Inspector, and my sister bought bread from her to help her out. What'll I tell her, Inspector? Uh, tell her to come back again. Mm, yes, sir. We were talking about money, John. You say Miss Baumholt kept some here in the house? Yeah, she had about $50. Where did she keep it? In the sugar bowl in the kitchen cabinet there. Will you show it to me? Sure. Right over here. Up there on the top shelf. Here it is. Wait a minute. I'll get it done. Let me handle it with this handkerchief. There might be some valuable fingerprints on this sugar bowl. Just lift the lid off now. Hmm. No money in here. Why, she had $50 there, Bill. She's been saving it up for a long time. Murdered for $50. How do you know? What? You heard me. How do you know? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't hear so well. Well, the money's gone, isn't it? Whoever took this money knew exactly where to go for it. Whoever killed that good woman in there knew her. Oh, poor Aunt Frances. (laughs) She was the best friend I had in the world. (laughs) Oh, don't go on like that, George. Ah, cut it out, will you? (laughs) Inspector Smith, I just had a phone call. Could I... Uh... Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> what is it, Reed? 
Inspector, we just got a tip outside on this nephew, George. What is it? George wanted money to open up a butcher shop. I see. Stick around, Reed. Yes, Inspector. Charlie, John, do you mind stepping out into the next room? I want to talk with George here. Oh, I course. Pay attention now, George. Yes, sir. How much money do you make a week? Fifteen dollars. Did you pay your aunt anything for board? Yes, sir. Ten dollars a week. You knew where your aunt kept her money, didn't you? What did you say? Can't you hear very well? No, sir, I don't. I guess that's why I didn't hear. At Francis this morning. What was it you asked me? You did know, didn't you, where your aunt kept her money? Yes, but you don't think Never that mind I... what I think. You don't like that night shift at the packing plant, do you? No, it's long hours and awful hard work. So you wanted to open a butcher shop, didn't you, George? Why? You had the store all picked out, didn't you? I was just looking at places. Just dreaming about it, was that right, George? Yeah. How how was I going to get money enough to open a butcher shop? Well, maybe the packing plant would have given you a little credit. With your aunt's name to back you up and a little of her cash? You you don't think I killed my aunt for a miserable $50? I've seen people murdered for less than that. But how could I have killed her? I was asleep. You slept all morning? Right through a murder. I tell you, I'm a heavy sleeper. I, I don't hear very well. I didn't hear a thing. Then we won't find your fingerprints on this sugar bowl, will we? Oh, no. Oh, yeah, sure. Of course you'll find my fingerprints. My Uncle John's, my Uncle Charlie's. We handle that sugar bowl every Sunday whenever we have company. All right, George, all right. (laughs) You're a heavy sleeper. And I don't hear very well. Sure. That's all, George. You can go out in the next room now. And Francis has raised me ever since I was ten. He took me when my father and mother died. George. Yes? You don't hear very well, eh? The real tragedy, Father Baumholt. All the women in the neighborhood are here weeping for your sister. Yes, Inspector Smith. My sister was a woman with true charity in her heart. She lived a Christian life, but I'm sure she died a Christian death, even though it was a violent one. Father Baumholtz, uh, I'm in a rather difficult position. I saw you pray beside Miss Francis just now, and I... I'm a man of the cloth, and you hesitate to say things you might say to someone else. Is that it, Inspector? Yes, Father. Well, do not let it concern you. Do your duty. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And unto God the things that are God's. You mean I... The law must take its course. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Very well, Father. You've talked with your brother John and your nephew George? Yes. Have they told you that we consider both of them first-class suspects? Yes, they have. Well, Father, this is pretty hard to say, but... Well, circumstantial evidence against them is pretty heavy. I don't wish to divert your investigation in any direction. But I'm rather sure of one thing. What's that, Father Bumholt? Such a deed, if it were possible, would have caused instant regret and almost immediate confession from either John or George. Uh, Father, you certainly have me in a tough spot. Do your duty, my son. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I ask no vengeance for my sister. Only the law under which we live. Well, I'm having those bloodstains on the doorknob checked against everybody's fingerprints. And the fingerprints on the teacup? Yes. And the coal dust? Father, we're checking on that right now. Must have been tracked in from the coal shed in the yard. We've talked to all the neighbors. They heard nothing. You can't go in there 
humbled. I just got to see him. I, I just want to say a word to him. Why, certainly. Come right in. Oh, uh, may she inspect him? Oh, certainly, certainly. Oh, Father, you don't know how sorry I am about your sister. There now, Mrs. Beckham. It was God's will. Such a good woman. Such a kind neighbor. This is a woman who brings bread to the house. Mrs. Becker, the one I told you about, Inspector. Oh, yes, yes. Perhaps you could help us, Mrs. Becker. I would be glad to. Indeed, I would. Uh, sit down, please. Thank you. Oh, it's good to sit down. I'm not as young at 60 as I was at 20. But you're hale and hearty, Mrs. Becker. Good and strong. Inspector Smith, Mrs. Becker has been baking bread for my sister for a great many years. Oh, yes. Then he's the loaf I've baked for her. But no more now. There, there, my child. Mrs. Becker, just how often did you bring bread here? Every Wednesday and Saturday. And you were here today? Yes, I came a while ago, but the police wouldn't let me in. That's right, Inspector. Mrs. Becker, you knew all of Mrs. Baumholt's family, didn't you? Yes. Did you ever hear any quarrels among them? Speak, my child. There was never a harsh word spoken in this house. Miss Francis was a soul of kindness, and everyone around here felt her good influence. Thank you, Mrs. Becker. I'm only speaking the truth. Everyone in this neighborhood will tell you the same thing. Who do you think killed her? I don't know. It might have been a tramp. It seems like every hobo on the road knew that Miss Francis' house was the one that wouldn't turn them away for a bite to eat. Have you ever seen any of these tramps? Oh, yes, many times. Would you remember any of these tramps if you saw them again? Maybe I would. I would try. Reed, send out a flash to pick up all vagrants. Have them brought up to headquarters and we'll have Mrs. Becker look them over. All cars. All cars. Arrest all vagrants. Bring to headquarters immediately in connection with some old murder case. Arrest all vagrants. remember nothing, I tell you. I assure this man, Mr. Becker. Oh, I've seen so many of these men you've arrested, but this one's been around to Miss Baumholt's place. I'm sure of that. You don't deny that, do you, Morton? No, I've been around there, but I ain't got nothing to do with that... Uh, then why didn't you tell us where you were Wednesday morning, the morning of the murder? Honest, I can't remember. All I know is I was in a lot of saloons, bumming drinks. You haven't been bumming drinks, Morton. You've been paying for them. You spent money in bars all along Michigan Avenue. We've checked up on you, Morton. You were spending the money you took from that sugar bowl. No, no, I got that dough in a dice game. Trying to be leaving for the funeral, Inspector. All right, Reed. Take this man back and lock him up. Yes, sir. Come on, Morton. I didn't kill that woman. Sure, she gave me a hand up once in a while, but I wasn't there Wednesday. Are you ready, Mrs. Becker? Yes, Inspector. All right, we'll go right over to the church. Say hand, Sergeant. Yes, sir. <laughs> I've never been to a funeral mass before. Yes, it's beautiful and sad and uplifting all in one. I wonder how her brother will feel this morning. What do you mean? Saying his own sister's funeral mass. Uh, oh, are you sure you don't mind riding with a police escort like this? Oh, no. I was just thinking of poor Miss Francis. This is Saturday. The morning I always used to bring her bread. Morning, Mrs. Becker. In the morning, Wednesdays and Saturdays. Oh, that is, I mean in the afternoon. Well, aren't you sure? I get my wits of wool gathering. I 
always brought the bread in the afternoon. You remember, I came to the house last Wednesday in the afternoon. Oh, yes, yes, I remember. Oh, by the way, Mrs. Becker, do you mind if I sit with you during the Mass? No, indeed. I, I wish you would. I've never been to a funeral Mass. church now, Mrs. Becker. People would suspect you of the murder. I didn't do it. How could I do such a thing? Quiet. Father Barnold is going to speak. My dear brethren, I take this for my text this morning. Though I speak to the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am a sounding brass all as a tinkling symbol. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, amen. I perform this sad duty this morning, my dear brethren, not as a brother, but as one in the service of the Lord. And if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity... I can't stand this much longer. You killed her, didn't you, Miss Becker? No, no. Listen to what he's saying. Charity was the keynote of the life of this dear departed one. Her life was lived for her family and her friends. As a young girl, it was her desire to enter a convent and become a nun. This pious wish was foregone when she, together with three brothers, became an orphan. Can't bear this. But something makes you stay in this church and listen, doesn't it? But him, you put it in that corner. 
You killed her. And he was always so good to me. And why did you kill her? I didn't. It is not for us Please. to judge, but to be judged. This servant of the Lord was prepared to go. As she lived, so she died. Embraced in the love of God. There was never anything but charity in the sweet, clean soul of my sister who lies before me in death. What simple goods of this world she had, she shared with others. Her reward, not in this life, but in the next, will be to hear those words of eternal comfort. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. This faithful servant of the law was taken from this world by a violent hand. No, no. It was your hand. You did it. I no. would be a sounding brass or a tinkling symbol if I did not ask for charity, for compassion, for the one guilty of this grievous. The laws of eternal justice reach beyond this little day of ours. I can't stand this. You'll have to take me a out of this church. You killed Francis Bonhoeff, didn't you? Admit it. Yes. Yes, I punished. killed her. Take me out of here. All right. Come on. Let's go as quietly as we can. You should never have come to this funeral. I was all right till I came here. Take me out. Take me out. Take me out. And so, my dear brethren... If I could only take back what I did. It's too late now. Be guided by this blameless light. Learn the reward. Mass over, Inspector? Not yet, Sergeant. Here's the murder of Francis Baumholt. She had everything, I tell you. I had nothing. She was a poor woman. She had fifty dollars in a sugar bowl. And you killed her for that after all she did for you. Sure. She bought bread for me. She gave me money besides. And she gave me clothes, but it wasn't enough. I asked her for more. You planned everything for last Wednesday morning, didn't you? Yes. I had it all figured out. Last Wednesday morning, around six o'clock, I took bread to Miss Francis. I found her in the cold Helen, I would be glad to help you, but I can't do any more now. That's right. Throw your charity in my face. Now, Carolyn, I know you've been working hard. Come in the house and I'll make you a cup of nice hot tea. I don't want tea. I want money. I, I'm tired of slaving all my life. Now, now, just wait till I fill up this cold supper. You have $50 in the kitchen in a sugar bowl. Helen, you mustn't think those thoughts. You mustn't think of that money. It's all we have. But look, I will let you have a little of it. I don't want a little of it. I want all of it, and I'm going to get it now. Helen, stop. I hit her a lot of times and I carried her into the house. She wanted to pray, so I got her rosary for her and helped her to kneel by the side of the bed. I put blood stains on that doorknob. I took the money. Sure, I took it. I killed her for it. I'm an old woman, but I'm strong. I killed her. I killed her. Mrs. Carolyn Becker, the jury having found you guilty of murder in the first degree, it now becomes the duty of this court to pass sentence upon you. 
I hope that the prayers of your victim may follow you. I hereby sentence you to state prison for the rest of your natural life. Be with us again when truth and justice triumph in the name of the law. Our final show this time around is not really a police drama, but I thought it would be pretty interesting to include it. It's The Night Beat. Randy Stone, a newspaper reporter, gets down and dirty in the parts of the big city most reporters wouldn't want to go. And while he wasn't trying to outsmart the police, he often solved the crime at hand. So let us join Randy Stone on The Night Beat, July 26, 1950, from NBC. Wheaties presents Night Beat. On stage tonight, transcribed from Hollywood, Nightbeat, another in the Wheaties' big parade of exciting half-hour presentations. This is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Stories start in many different ways. And sometimes when you pick up the threads of a yarn and start putting them together, you find you've woven yourself a shroud. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Did you know? Wheaties at 7 can help at 11. They really can. The world isn't half so tough to face when you've got a good breakfast under your belt. And it doesn't matter what part of the world you're facing, either. Farmers can farm better, actors can act better, salesmen can sell better on a better breakfast. And that's what you start with when you start with Wheaties. Because here are flakes of whole wheat. Whole wheat. With the vitamins, the minerals, the wonderful, life-giving energy of whole wheat. The very things you need to get work done that you're meant to get done in the morning. Of course, it's no fun getting up in the morning to just a batch of vitamins and minerals. Mm, wouldn't that be dull? But it's fun, you bet it is, to lay spoon to crisp, flaky little flakes called Wheaties. Pour on the cold milk, put on the fruit you like best, and eat happy. Breakfast of champions. Breakfast for you. Come on now. See how Wheaties at 7 can help at 11. A great poet once wrote about Chicago. He said it was a city built by men with muscles and a willingness to use them. Well, Chicago is still full of willing people. Some willing to work and others willing to let them. You take Gus Reed, who broke jail last week while doing life for murder. Not that he ever became bent with honest toil. He just got crooked trying to avoid it. But now he was out, escaped with a famous hood named Neil Ramsey. When I dropped into the precinct station to see if there were any late developments, the boys told me there might be some later on. So I stepped out for a cup of coffee and a sandwich at Harpoon Louis, a few blocks down the avenue. Oh, hello, Mr. Stone. Been several nights since I've seen you. Working hard? Well, I've been on the jump. What's good tonight? 
Got a fresh-baked ham that's quite tasty. That's a deal. On uh, white or rye? Ah, uh, rye, I guess. Mustard and pickle, I presume? Yeah, and a cup of cock... Well, look what just walked in. Huh? Looks like the man from Mars. What happened, kiddo? Your flying saucer breakdown? Oh, well, goodness, you're a big boy to be wearing a Halloween mask. Shut up. Uh, What's the big idea? What's it look like? She's a sticker. The kid was sandy-haired, skinny, and as nervous as a two-headed boy at a scalping party. A mask covered his entire face, a fantastic false face with a couple of rubber antenna quivering over the eyebrows. Very amusing. Until you looked down and saw the thirty-eight in his fist. All right. You, behind the counter. Open the cash register. Let's have it, quick. Well, all right. Easy with that gun, kid. Shut up, you. Empty your pockets. Anything you say. Easy on the trigger. There you are. All right. You behind the counter. Just lay that money on the showcase. It, uh, it isn't worth it, you know, son. I'll just take that. As the kid stepped forward, his eyes on the money, I lunged swinging. He whirled as my fist smashed against his wrist. The gun hit the floor and I snatched at his mask, ripping off a corner as the elastic snapped. He jerked away, tripping me as I grabbed him. I fell. The last thing I remember as my head hit the radiator was his white face as he jerked open the door and darted out. Help! Help! Please! When I came to, I was lying on the floor with the delicatessen owner and a couple of cops standing over me. I stared up at them, my brain knee-deep in fog. Oh, that man's gone, huh? Oh, How's your head feel, Stone? Oh, it's sagging like a, a wet circus tent. Uh, here, let me help you up, Mr. Stone. Thank you. Thank you. I can manage. Hey, here's a description of the kid that Louie gave us. See how it checks with you, will you? Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. About uh, 13, 5 feet 3, white hair. Mm-hmm. I uh, suppose you'll be able to trace him by that gun he left, won't you? Oh, it's probably stolen. Why do you suppose a boy, a, a child, would do a thing like that? You suppose he was hungry? <laughs> Those little rats are just born mean, I know. But all this juvenile delinquency we've been having lately, can't something be done? The only answer is treat them rough. Got to be twice as hard as they think they are. Our tombstones are hard, too, officer, but they generally have a good word or two for the people beneath them. Okay, Mr. Stone. After what happened to you tonight, I'll leave it to you to find a good word for them. Well, heaven help us if we don't. Yeah. Come on, Joe. Uh, be at Detective Headquarters first thing in the morning, will you, Louie? Uh, yes. Well, I suppose I'd better make a report to my insurance company. Uh Uh-oh, what's this? What is it, Mr. Stone? You find something? Yeah, a piece of the kid's mask. Tore it off when I grabbed him. This must have overlooked it lying there on the floor. Well, it doesn't matter, I suppose. No, maybe not, but it's the part that has the price label stuck on the inside. Oh? Yeah, with the name of the store printed on it. Eddie and Mabel's Refreshments, Toys, Novelties. Uh, Louie, where's your telephone directory? The address turned out to be down in the low-rent district. I hopped a taxi, and in a matter of minutes, I was standing in front of Eddie and Mabel's, staring at the toys littering the dusty showcase. Among them lay a few tired-looking masks, each one identical with the one the kid had worn. I went in. Yeah? 
something I can do for you? I was just noticing those masks in your window. Have you sold any recently? Masks? Who sells masks this time of year? Why? Well, I just wonder. George comes in and sells my husband masks. Imagine, in April, my husband buys masks for Halloween. Well. A hat he's got on him. I, uh. Two months we have these masks in stock, and how many do you think we sell? One. One single mask. A businessman, he calls himself. Ha! Just when did you sell that one mask? Well, it so happens just this morning. To a 13-year-old boy who needs it like I need a hold ahead. Who is he? His poor mother slaves all day long in a laundry, and he spends money on junk like that. Does it pay to have children? I ask you. What's his name? Reed, Jimmy Reed. Oh, I feel sorry for his mother. Such a bum that kid is. But with that kind of a father, what can you expect? Oh, wait just a minute. Did you say Reed? Who is his father? Gus Reed, the gangster who breaks out of prison. It's in all the papers. Oh, yeah. I see. How is it that you know the boy and his mother so well? Why shouldn't I? They live in the apartment house on the corner. Why? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Good night. I could have sworn that I'd heard dim voices as I'd approached the door of the Reed apartment, but now there was nothing but silence. The silence of an enemy holding his breath. Does Jimmy Reed live here? What's he done now? Are you Mrs. Reed? Yeah. Are you from the police? Oh, no, no, but I'd like to see him for his own good. Well, he's, uh... He's not here now. If you'll come back tomorrow, he'll... Look, lady, if I go now, I'll be back with the cop. Let him in! Let him in! If it's so important... Come in, pal. No sense bothering the cops. I said come in. And keep those mitts lifted high. It was the infamous Neil Ramsey, the lad who busted out with Gus Reed. He stepped from behind the door, lean and dark, his mouth grinning, but his eyes as cold as rigor mortis. Eyes I'd seen staring many an FBI poster and rogues gallery album. And behind him, the heavier red-eyed Gus. Well, what are you waiting for? Come on in. Okay, Gus, I'll go along with the crowd. Those guns you've got look like a big crowd to me. Hey, Pop, that's the guy who jumped me at the delicatessen. Hi, Jimmy. Um, now, the boy made a slight mistake, Gus. He didn't keep his eye on the sucker. You and your lousy two bucks. I would have done all right if you hadn't stuck your big, fat nose in. Yeah, not uh, much of a teacher, are you, Gus? But then I don't suppose I can blame you. You never had nerve enough to stick up anybody yourself. You shot him in the back and then robbed him. So I ain't got nerve, huh? Show him, Pop. Gus, don't. Please don't needle him, mister. He's been drinking. Yeah, I know. Whenever he gets into trouble, he tries to pull himself out with a corkscrew. You can't do it, Gus. He said Papa's yellow. So I'm yellow, huh? Oh, sure. You're a colorful character, Gus. A red nose, white liver, and a yellow streak. Yellow, huh? Don't try it, Gus. Shoot, and you'll get the chair this time. Keep your hands up. Yellow, huh? Gus, no! I'll you! Oh. His gun butt cracked against my skull, and I staggered backwards tripped over a constellation of stars and fell into darkness. Why did you do it? Why did you do it? You killed him! Killed him! General Mills is bringing you Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. We have a special treat for you tonight, and here's Ed Prentice to tell you about it. 
Thanks, Frank. Folks, I'd like you to meet an old friend of mine. Here's Luke Appling, the dashing young man of the Chicago White Sox. Ah, uh, cut it out, Ed. I've been playing ball for the Sox for over 20 years. Why, that's way back before Wheaties baseball broadcast. Huh, that's almost way back before Wheaties. <laughs> and say, Ed, speaking of Wheaties, I brought along some peaches from down home in Georgia. Reckon we can locate some bowls around here? Maybe the cast would like a little snack after the show. Well, what could be better than that? A Wheaties champion dishing up the breakfast of champions for a bunch of champion actors. Stick around, Luke. I got a whole case of Wheaties waiting for you. That's swell, Ed. But could I have just one bowl now? Wheaties are awfully tough to wait for. And now back to Nightbeat and Randy Stone. When I found myself the prisoner of a couple of fugitive killers, I should have played a dumb instead of giving out with a smart talk. Might have saved me a crack on the head to match the one I got in the delicatessen store. When I came to, I was lying on a sofa, limp as a poached egg on toast. I turned my head and I saw Mrs. Reed with Lieutenant Saunders of Homicide. Looks like he's coming out of it. How do you feel, Stone? Uh, one more dent in my skull, I'll rent it for a golf ball. So Gus and Neil got past you, huh? Well, they won't get past the roadblocks we set up. How'd they get out of the house? Over the roof? Yeah, same way they got in, apparently. Old stuff. You should have figured that, Lieutenant. Oh, sure. Just like you figured on finding them there when you stuck your nose in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jimmy, go with him? Jim's a child. Baby, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's a good boy, Mr. Stone. It's all his father's fault. He's twisted, Jimmy. He thinks his father's a hero. Okay, Mrs. Reed, that wraps it up. We're through here for the time being. After Lieutenant Saunders and his men left, I tried to get the answers to some questions I'd missed. For instance, why had Gus and Neil come here? What did they want? Food, liquor, money. They took everything I had. Have any idea where they might be heading? I only wish I knew. Well, Gus broke out a week ago. If, if this is the first time he's been here, there's a chance he's been laying low in a hideout probably... Well, probably just outside of Chicago. I don't know. Mrs. Ray, do you think Jimmy's known about the hideout? Has his father been in touch with him this past week? I don't know. He's been acting so strange. Mm-hmm. You think Gus could have contacted him before he broke out? Or that Jimmy might have known in advance? Well, how could he? Did he see his father in prison lately? No, not lately. Uh-huh. Gus uh, write him very often? No, not nearly as much as Jimmy wrote him. He kept his father's letters? Oh, of course. Kept them like they were treasure. Can you get them? I'd like to look them over. Oh. I'll see if I can find them. I studied the half dozen or so letters that Mrs. Reed brought me and found nothing. They were uniformly dull, stupid, and apparently without significance. That is, all except the last one. Jimmy got it a couple of weeks ago. Read it. Be a good boy and don't get mixed up with the old lakeside gang of a bunch at the tavern. Abandon the road to evil. It doesn't sound like Gus, does it? Mm-hmm. Trying to get in good with the prison censor, that's why. Putting on the hypocrite. Uh-huh. I uh, get homesick off and on. Your accident on the Compton Highway was tough. Yours truly, your own hand. Compton Highway? I don't know what Jimmy told him, but he certainly didn't have any accident. Uh, what about the Lakeside Gang? Oh, I never heard of it. This bunch at the tavern he mentioned. Well, I tell you, it doesn't make sense. Jimmy would have told me if there'd been any trouble. I know he would have. 
Mm, abandon the road to evil. No, you're absolutely right, Mr. Reed. Doesn't make sense. I'm a... I held it up to the ceiling light, and there it was. Pinpoints of light gleaming through eight words in the letter. What is it? Does this make any sense to you? Old Lakeside Tavern, abandoned road off Compton Highway. Lakeside Tavern? Of course, it used to work there. When? Years ago, it was a beer parlor. On an abandoned road? Well, it wasn't then. They built a shortcut later that bypassed it. The place was condemned. Uh-huh. Well, I'd better be going. I'm going with you. On a hold? You can't stop me. Jimmy's there. We don't know that. Well, if that's where they are, he's there, and I'm going. Now, look, the best thing that we can do is go to the police and tell them no, what we No, 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 Mr. Stone, please. They'll be shooting. Jimmy will be killed. As long as he stays with Even them. if he isn't, if he's arrested there, it'll make things worse for him than they are now. Please, Mr. Stone, let's do it my way. But what? What can you do? Well, get him away from there first before the police come. Well, I'll probably regret this, but come on. We took a taxi to the garage where I picked up my car and we headed out past Lincoln Park, turning southeast for the highway. You sure we turned off at the right place? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. It's just part of the old road. There. And there it is, the tavern between those trees. Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. What is it? Thought I saw a light in one of those woods. Oh, I didn't see anything. Now, look. We passed a filling station about a mile back down the road. Be much better if we went back and buzzed the state highway. Oh, no. And what are you doing? Hey, Wait. Look, you want to get us killed? There's nobody here. Well, let's get back to the car and get out of here. Wait. What are you doing? I like to take a look inside. Why? Well, they may have been here and gone. Please wait. We might come on a clue. Everything comes to him who waits, including a hearse. It's unlocked. Now, let's get a match going. Okay, let's go in and watch out for snakes. Don't you ever oh. knock... Well, I was afraid we'd find a snake in here. Hiya, Neil. Stay right where you are, wise guy. What are you doing here in the dark, waiting for something to develop? You know, that door with the moonlight behind you makes a very nice frame. I couldn't miss. Jimmy! Jimmy, where are you? Cut it out, sister. Okay, Gus, open up the lantern. We got him. Yeah. Gus. Yeah. Close the door, mister. <coughs> so you found the place, huh? Gus. Well, I hope you're satisfied. Gus, where's Jimmy? What's happened to him? Oh, what's happened to him, she says. Here I am sitting with a bullet in my chest, and all she hollers is, what's happened to that dumb little punk? Gus. She sees me. Gus, where is he? Oh, dry up. He'll be back. I just sent him down the road for a can of gas. Where's your car? You think we'd leave it out in front? Uh, what happened to Gus? Who shot him? What difference does it make? This is one story you ain't covering, pal. There ain't no kibitzes tonight. You dealt yourself in and your cards don't look good, pal. <laughs> Not with me holding six bullets in my hand. Well, like they say, Neil, the game is always darkest before you've drawn. Yeah, well, you don't get no more cards, friend. You're through. The roadblock. Of course, Gus got it when you crashed the roadblock. <laughs> Give the sucker a cigar. <clears throat> you know, I get a bang knocking you two off right now. But just in case we do have trouble, maybe we could use a hostage or two. Hostage? <laughs> Neil, that's a $2 word. Yeah, yeah. I got a 39-cent rope to go with it. 
Turn around, both of you. Well, I guess that'll hold you for a while. Keep him covered, Gus. As soon as the kid gets back, he can come upstairs and stand watch at the window while I come down and take over. Give you a chance to sleep. Yeah. And if they try anything, let them have it. I, I can handle them. Go on. <coughs> Go on. Gus. Gus, I don't care what you do to me, but your son, your own flesh and blood. Shut up. Gus, please. Yeah, Listen, yeah. Gus. All this time I've been saving, hoping to have enough to send him to college someday, and then you come back. College? <laughs> All right, so you'll go to college. I got some deals coming. Look, you you help me get out of this spot, honey. We'll have enough dough. The Gold Coast Servants College, huh? So I'll send him to college. <laughs> but you can send him to college, Gus, now. What? What are you talking You're about? You're worth $5,000. Dead or alive. <laughs> Reward? $5,000. Look, let Ann turn you in. Let her, Gus. She'll get the reward. Just cut us loose. What kind of a sucker do you think I am, you lying? All right, then. All I got to say is you better see a doctor before morning if you expect to live. Shut up. <laughs> I'll dance on your grave, you creep. What's the use of kidding yourself? You're dying. You're just sitting there dying. Your only chance is a doctor now before it's too late. I don't have to tell you, Gus. That bullet's in your lungs. And when you start to go, it'll be fast. Nothing will save you. Go ahead and die, why don't you now? No. No, no, no look. Someone's coming. Huh? Jimmy! Ma! Ma, how'd you get here? Oh, Jimmy. Ma, did you have to tie her up? Hey, punk! Neil! Hey, why'd you have to tie her up? See, you come up the road with that can of gas. Where is it? Outside. Well, get it in the car. You hear me? Make it snappy. Yeah. And when you're through, come on up here. Okay. Ma. It's all right, Jimmy. Jimmy, Neil will kill you, Mother. You've got to cut us loose. Oh, no. No, he won't. Everything will be all right, Ma. <laughs> I got to get to a doctor. You haven't got much time, Gus. Pa. I, I got to get out of here. Cheapers, well, Pop, we can't. Maybe if I can get Neil to let me go for a doctor... A doctor he'd... won't do him any good here. He's got to get to a hospital. Yeah. But, Pop... But I'm but... dying. I can't lay here and just die. But, Pop, Neil said all the rules... Neil be hanged. He can burn for all I can. It's your only chance, Gus. Not only for yourself, but your wife and Jimmy. The reward will help. Reward? What difference does that make to me? Look, I got to get to a hospital. Look, I'll cut you loose. You, you got to help me. Huh? Roll over. Right. <laughs> Close enough? Yeah. Make a sound, make a sound, you little rat, and I'll bless you. Yes, he won't, he won't. There. Now your hands are loose. Give me that gun and the knife. Okay, Mrs. Reed. Oh. And now your ankles. Oh. There you are. Okay. Stand right where you are. Neil. Yeah, your partner. Neil Ramsey stood at the head of the stairs at the other end of the big room. I could barely make him out in the dim gloom, but you didn't have to spotlight his forty-five to know that it was looking down at us. Drop the rod, journalist. He 
came down, crossed the floor, his face twisted in the kind of grin you see pictured on labels over the word poison. So you want to go to a hospital, eh, Gus? Neela, I gotta, I can't, yeah. I can't breathe. And I can blame for all you care, eh? No, I, I didn't mean it that way, Neil. You want to go to a hospital, give up. They can't give you a worse sentence than what you got now, is that it? I wouldn't say anything, Neil. I, I would... But me, I burn when they catch me. Eh? But you don't care. That's okay by you, eh? <laughs> I, I, I'm no good to you, Neil. Please. Please, Neil, don't do it. I, I wouldn't double-cross you. I swear. Yeah, I wouldn't you swear. I'm just looking at you, Gus. I'm wondering why an operator like me, who's supposed to have a few brains... Ever tied up with a cheap, yellow... Not pops are not yellow. What's the matter, punk? Does the truth hurt? Well, he'll tell you so himself. Go on, go on. Tell him, Gus. Tell him you're a cheap, yellow lout. Tell him or I'm... I'm a cheap, yellow lout. Oh, please, Neil, please let me alone. I can't breathe. Please. Pop. You can't breathe, eh? Well, nobody that can't breathe belongs in any hospital. Neil. No. The place for him no. is the mall. No. You butcher. You shot my pop. You shot him. I'll kill you. kid flew at him, and as he wheeled a shoot, I put everything I had into a right that struck behind his ear with a shock that jarred me to my toes. Neil lay at our feet, sprawled out as cold as a witch's kiss. Jimmy stared down at him, the frenzy draining from his face. And something else went out of him, too. He turned slowly, and he stared at Gus's dead face for half a minute. What? Why did he do it? Why did Bob do it? To what, Jimmy? What to? Turned yellow. Yellow. He turned yellow. Look, Jimmy. I know he was your pop and it's tough, but without his gun, he was nothing. Nate would have turned yellow, too, if Gus had hit the drop on him. Without their guns, without having that advantage, they're all yellow, Jimmy, all of them. Begging for their lives and licking your boots and asking for mercy that they themselves had never given. People like that aren't heroes, kiddo. Takes a lot more than a gun to make a hero. A lot more. Jimmy. And you know what, Jimmy? You can be different. I think you have what it takes. Jimmy, dear. He'll be all right. Given half a break. I'm sure of it. still dark with leftover night. A few hours from now, Mrs. Reed will find out that there is no reward for Gus, that I uh, lied trying to trick him into letting us go. But she'll feel better about it, maybe, when she finds out there is one for Neil and $5,000 worth. So maybe Jimmy will have his chance for an education after all. That is, after we straighten out a slight case of armed robbery and aiding to escape convicts. This is going to take quite some straightening, but uh, when it comes to kids, even at four in the morning, I'm an optimist. Hmm. Well, so that's it. 
It isn't often life ties up a story with a rose-colored ribbon. Usually it just leaves the loose ends dangling. So, uh, well, let's tie it up. Copy, boy. You are listening to Nightbeat on the Wheaties' Big Parade. And here's the star of Nightbeat, Frank Lovejoy. Got your Wheaties on you, Frank? Oh, no, I hardly ever carry them with me, Frank, but uh, I always know where I can get them, you know. Mm-hmm. We have a place on the cupboard shelf at home reserved for the Wheaties box. Well, I suppose with a couple of youngsters digging in, the Wheaties don't last long at the Lovejoy house. Oh, that's for sure. We really go through them. Mm, so do we. I guess there are a lot of families like ours, Frank, where Wheaties have a reserved place on the cupboard shelf. Well, I can't think of a nicer whole wheat flake to reserve a place for, Frank Martin. <laughs> Good night. Good night, Frank Lovejoy. Get your Wheaties, everybody. Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy, is produced and directed by Warren Lewis and edited by Larry Marcus. Tonight's story was written by Irvin Ashkenazi and John Robinson with music by Frank Worth. The part of Gus was played by Bill Conrad. B. Benaderet was Anne. Others in tonight's cast were Jack Crucian, Sheldon Leonard, Jeff Silver, and Parley Bear. Listen next week at this time and every week as Randy Stone searches through the city for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. And this is the Wheaties man, Frank Martin, inviting you to listen also on Tuesday, that's tomorrow night, to the Penny Singleton Show on the Wheaties Big Parade. See you then. Nightbeat came to you transcribed from Hollywood. Stay tuned now for Top Secret, starring Alona Massey. And that will do it for our broadcasting day. Please join us again next time on WOTR, your old-time radio station on the Internet. WOTR is produced by JNR Productions, which is solely responsible for its content. Music is provided by the YouTube Audio Library and Dan Lebowitz. My name is John Richardson.